we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right so place. That you can, uh, Welcome to it. Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the radio chickie bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. food shortages, supply chain breakdowns continue to have a domino effect on everything, especially food production. Farmers can't plant as many crops now because of fertilizer shortages, forced regulations, and of course, high fuel prices. This will cause more painful food shortages when we run out of the food we're eating now. You know, food takes time to grow. So when farmers don't plant, well, months later, we don't eat. That's why you need to prepare for an increasing number of food shortages. And the best way is to invest in ready hour emergency food from My Patriot Supply. It's a perfect hedge against skyrocketing prices and shortages. Right now, save $50 on a four-week food kit from My Patriot Supply. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and get your $50 savings on a four-week emergency food kit that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's preparewithsouthernsense.com. Those who know what's coming are getting prepared now. Well, if you don't want to type in that whole big thing saying preparewithsouthernsense.com and you're on my website, which is Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense, as in commonsense.com, you can easily click on My Patriot Supply and go directly to the website and get your $50 savings. As I'm telling you now, 
Those who know what's coming are getting prepared right now. Shouldn't you? Prepare with southern-sense.com. That's southern-sense.com. Click on My Patriot Supply. Do it now. All right. And if I can manage to hit the right buttons, we can get the show on the road. Yay, I did, I did, I did. Hallelujah. Welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, and half a dozen other different places. I have no idea where we are anymore. Oh, but just click on southern-sense.com and enjoy us everywhere. I'm your hostess with the least most is the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous co-host going, what the heck is she doing today, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett? <laughs> Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? Hey, all right. I was trying to figure out if this was a guest online, but I didn't get any answers, so I guess they'll let us know one way or another, but... Other than that, I'm ready for the show. Well, we got ourselves a stellar lineup, uh, pun intended, because our first guest, her name is Stella, Stella Morabito. Uh, She's the author Mm. of a great book called The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. And that's going to be filed by Kevin Schmidt, who is a director of investigations for Americans for Prosperity Foundation, along with Mark Tapscott of the Epic Times, our friend who comes every two weeks. He's going to be joining us, um, followed by Dr. Robert Dean. He's a board-certified ENT. That's an ear, nose, and throat guy. I won't even try to pronounce the, uh, uh, the correct name of his, uh, his uh, specialty. And uh, he's promoting health care deregulation. And our final guest will be from the Heritage Foundation, Paul Dance. Now, Heritage has a new project out there. It's called Project 2025. It's a presidential transition project. And that's going to be great. So we got a lot to talk about and a lot that's going on in today. Um, they're still trying to get us into WHO, the World Health Organization, into that treaty. But uh, Congress has passed legislation to prohibit that. Whether it goes through the Senate and is signed by Biden, I don't know. Uh, This is going to be a struggle. But we're also going to be talking about certificate of need, uh, why so many places can't have hospitals and other medical facilities open, even so much that these certificate of needs dictate whether or not a hospital can actually buy beds. We're going to be discussing that. We're going to be discussing so much Mm. more. And I'm running out of breath already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As always, it's the end of the week, Friday. (laughs) Wind down day. Yeah. Thank God it is Friday because, like I said, this has been a crazy, crazy week. Um, If people have not seen me out on social network or checking in on any other shows, uh, Sunday night I had to uh, race my fiancé Omar to the um, ER. Um, he was going into uh, uh, some problems with his heart and blood pressure went sky high. So it was a pleasant evening for him <laughs> in the hospital. <laughs> mm. And then I get home uh, and my sister bought my mom one of these Fitbits. Uh, God bless my mom. She'll be 91 this July 4th. And 
as I'm checking her Fitbit, I'm finding that she's going into atrial fibrillation, which she normally does. She'll go in and out, in and out. But she was staying in it for a very long period of time. So I rushed her over to her cardiologist, thank God, so I didn't want to have to take her to the hospital because that's a freaking nightmare. And sure enough, she was in AFib, and I had to bring her back the next day so they could put a monitor on her. So it's been a whirlwind week. <laughs> so if I'm seeing it you like it. nuts, <laughs> rushed, <laughs> I yeah, am. I thought I had a we were supposed week. to have, yeah, we were supposed to have uh, the new format up today. So because of everything that went on this week, um, I wasn't able to do it. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Monday night, we had. You'll notice nationwide the. Uh, Republican parties has their precinct reorganizations, and we had ours here in Beaufort County. And of course, you know, once again, I get elected as uh, the executive chair for the for my precinct, <laughs> which means, oh, gee, more work for me to do. More work, more volunteerism. More, more work. Yeah, you never know. You never know. But I want to welcome everyone that is here listening over on Blog Talk Radio in our chat room as well as that is listening over on YouTube and Facebook. We have them both up and running. And if you can't get to any of those and you still can hear my voice, you can also go to our homepage, Southern Sense. Just put a dash in the middle. Just pull up our homepage. It'll give you the links to YouTube, Facebook, to here on Blog Talk Radio. You can enter into the chat and join with us over there. And I am monitoring. I'm bouncing between different screens to visit all the different chats to make sure I don't miss anyone out there. So, again, welcome everyone that's listening in. And I see more and more people popping in in our chat room uh, here on Blog Talk Radio. So I want to say hi to them also. And thank you for sticking with us with all of our difficulties and our little every now and then (laughs) mysterious vacations. (laughs) But we're Mm -hmm. back for now. (laughs) For now. (laughs) Anyway, that said, uh, those that listen to us know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's show is being dedicated to two individuals. And it's going to go out to Air Force Staff Sergeant Marshall uh, D. Roberts and Art Specialist Juan Miguel Mendez, and I know I'm going to mispronounce it, Cobar Ruberius. Uh, Both were killed in action on March 11th of 2020 while serving during Operation Inherent Resolve. And this is from the Military Times. And because at the time of both of these uh, these heroes passing, uh, we were in the midst of COVID, so there was not a lot of information about memorials, funeral services, because most of the nation and the world was in lockdown. So I hope I do them justice. And this reads, The military identified two U.S. troops killed in a rocket attack on March 11, 2023, on Camp Taji in Iraq, as Army Specialist Juan Miguel Mendez Cover Rubeus, 27, of Hanford, California, and Air Force Staff Sergeant Marshall D. Roberts, 28, of Oweso, Oklahoma. Mendez was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 227th Aviation Regiment, 1st Air Cavalry Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division out of Fort Hood, Texas. 
He was assigned to the 200, I'm sorry, Roberts was assigned to the 219th Engineering Installation Squadron of the Oklahoma Air National Guard's 138th Fighter Wing. A third service member killed in the attack was United Kingdom Lance Corporal Brody Gillian. He was 26 and previously identified by the British military. The International Military Coalition is capable and credible because of warriors like Juan, Brody, and Marshall, said Lieutenant General Pat White, Commanding General of Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, the coalition to defeat the Islamic State. They volunteered to serve the United States and the United Kingdom to improve their lives and help keep the world free from ISIS terrorism. Our fallen comrades had a legacy that will never be forgotten. The Oklahoma Air National Guard said Roberts enlisted in May of 2014 and is the first Oklahoma Air Guardsman to be killed in action since September 11th of 2001. He is the 20th Oklahoma National Guardsman who has died while deployed since 9-11. With the passing of Staff Sergeant Roberts, the 138th family has lost a dedicated airman, mentor, and leader. The 138th Wing Commander Colonel Michael Meeson said in a release, Our thoughts and prayers are with Staff Sergeant Roberts' family and friends as we stand with them through this difficult time. They are and always will be part of the 138th family. The governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, and Major General Michael Thompson, the adjutant general, also paid tribute to Roberts. Oklahomans all across the state mourn the loss of Staff Sergeant Roberts, he said. Today serves as a reminder of the many brave men and women who put their lives on the line every day to defend our state and our country. Our prayers are with Staff Sergeant Roberts' friends and family during this time and the state is prepared to offer any support possible. Mendez entered the Army in June of 2018 as a Signal Support System Specialist. Since March of 2019, he has been assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood. He deployed in support of Inherent Resolve Mission in October. Mendez, battalion commander, extended his condolences to the family of the fallen soldier who he called a cherished member of the unit. The regiment and his fellow soldiers are grieving the loss of a true warrior, said Lieutenant Colonel Adam S. Camaro. Command Sergeant Major Travis Etcher and I would like to express our most sincere condolences to the family and friends of Specialist Mendez. His loss is felt across the formation, and he will not be forgotten. Inherent Resolve Commander Lieutenant Pat White who also commands the third course at Fort Hood, issued a separate statement for Mendez. On behalf of the Fenton Corps and Fort Hood, Texas community, Emma and I send our deepest condolences to Juan's family, friends, and the 1st Cavalry Division troopers during this difficult time of mourning. Specialist Mendez was a warrior who will forever be remembered. The top commanders of U.S. forces in the Middle East Marine Corps General Kenneth Frank McKenzie, Jr., told lawmakers that an Iranian proxy group known as Kitab 
Hezbollah is believed to be responsible for the attack. A dozen other people were injured in the volley of 18 rockets fired at the base north of Baghdad. The U.S. launched retaliatory strikes on a Shia militia group later. The Pentagon said it hit five Qatab Hezbollah weapons facilities. Iraq's military said that the U.S. strikes killed five Iraqi security force members and one civilian. There was not much more left to tell about these two men, these two heroes. But we can imagine what their family and friends have been going through. And with the lockdowns of of COVID, how they were able to mourn with no one knowing. But we won't forget. We will never forget. So today's show is dedicated to to these two brave soldiers. It's also dedicated to all the men and women who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our promising history. We also dedicate it to the brave men and women that serve here at home, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services, those who put their lives on the line every day to protect and serve. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, iHeart. Oh, yeah, I keep on forgetting that. iHeartRadio. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com. And, of course, I'm your hostess with the least most of the radio ticket, Annie, along with my oh-so-wonderful co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. <laughs> Curtis, you're going to be calling uh, our guest in in about uh, five minutes, uh, but uh, I wanted to bring up one little uh, piece of information. Uh, first off, President Biden has put out more than a $9 trillion budget, which has tax increases especially to the um, energy industry. Uh, gee, uh, winter, it's kind of a winter. Yeah, 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 they're trying to kill gas, any oil exploration. Uh, but there's also a lot of other things that have been going on in the background that no one's really talking about. Uh, we see all the stuff about the Murdoch uh, murder uh, trial that happened here in South Carolina. Uh, we heard that all over the news. Um, we're hearing out all, all this little fluff and stuff because now um, DeSantis is out doing his speech and Trump is out doing his speeches and Biden's out doing his speeches. But stuff is silently being done behind the scenes and no one's talking about it. Uh, may not have a lot of chances of success, but Senate Republicans introduced legislation prohibiting the IRS from conducting financial surveillance on private citizens. Now, remember, they've been passing different types of things that if you spend more than $600, your bank account's going to be flagged. It used to be when they were trying to track um, terrorists sending money home to wherever, whether it's to Mexico or to Iran or to China or whatever, it was the, the, the uh, threshold was $10,000. But then they dropped it down to $600 in your bank account. This is not talking about overseas transfers of money. No, they're, not, they're talking about your transactions in your bank. Well, this one, the proposal prohibits the Secretary of the Department of Treasury from tracking the inflows or outflows of any account maintained by such an institute. Uh, they're talking about uh, Senate banking, housing. Uh, they said any balances or transactions or similar information with respect to any such account. So they're saying that they can't go into your bank account and do a surveillance on it, um, except to the extent that such report is required under any program. So if you have a bank that says, all right, fine, uh, there's a large transfer on this account, which is highly unusual for the type of transfers it's done. It's going to another account with suspicious connections to possibly terrorism or drug cartels or whatever. And then they'll flag it. And that I can understand in the pursuit of, of tracking down criminals. But when you go after an everyday citizen or even a legal alien who has a legal bank account and their money's going in, and say, for example, you decided to buy a new refrigerator and you wrote a checkout for it, your bank account would be flagged. Or you saw a nice piece of furniture or maybe that Gucci bag and you write the check out for it, or you use your debit card, or there's a financial transaction that's $600 or more that they're going to check you out? Oh, no. So Senate has been proactive. Um, they said the IRS has failed to secure private information and often struggles to provide basic customer service to millions of American taxpayers. It's accountable, too. 
and was designed to serve. It has no business attempting to monitor the everyday bank transaction and requiring financial institutions to turn over this data. Well, hallelujah. Thank you very much. Uh, So you can thank the co-sponsors of this bill. Now, this was originally proposed by Senators John Bozeman and Tom Cotton, both of Arkansas, as well as Mike Crapo of Idaho and Tim Scott here of South Carolina. Also, the other additional senators you can thank if they are in your state, John Brasso, Wyoming, Cynthia Loomis, Wyoming, Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee, Bill Haggerty, Tennessee, Mike Braun, and Todd Young of Indiana, Cassidy and John Kennedy of Louisiana, believe it or not, Susan Collins got off her duff in Maine, John Cornyn in Texas, and Ted Cruz, uh, Steve Daines of Montana, Joni Ernst, Iowa, Chuck Rasley, Iowa, Lindsey Graham, hi, Gramnesty got off his butt, thank you very much, Lindsey, here in my state of South Carolina, John Holden, uh, North Dakota, Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, Langford, Oklahoma, Marshall, Kansas, Moran, Kansas, Rand Paul, Kentucky, James Risch, uh, Idaho, Mike Rounds in South Dakota, John Thune, South Dakota, Rick Scott, Florida, J.D. Vance, Ohio, and Roger Wicker of Mississippi. So you can thank these senators for protecting your bank accounts. So please, uh, this article you can find up in the Epic Times, written by our friend Mark Tapscott, and it's titled, Senate Republicans Introduce Legislation Prohibiting IRS from Conducting Financial Surveillance on Private Citizens. So drop them a line and say thank you. With that said, we want to welcome to the show Stella, and I know Stella, I'm I'm half Italian, I know I'm going to mispronounce your last name, Morabito. Do I have it correct or wrong? You have it absolutely correct, Annie. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, I grew up repeating my mom's maiden name to the point every time everyone mispronounced it, which was Della Vecchia. (laughs) And you can imagine how that got butchered. Yeah, well, well but, but you, no, you pronounce it just right, Morbido, that's correct. Okay, so I haven't lost my touch. Well, you've got a fantastic book out, and it's called The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, I ha- Actually, I have not finished the last uh, chapter, but I was as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about everything that I know in history and compared it to what I know growing up and how I've seen our society morph. And you hit it right on the head, and we have reached a certain pitch in our society where the wokeness has silenced everyone. We're still fighting to get one American News back on the air on any major broadcaster like DirecTV or AT&T. We're fighting now to get Newsmax back on. I got banned off of YouTube last June, so I know what it feels like. I've had my website pages taken down, but it's gotten to the point where, heaven forbid, you give someone the wrong pronoun, and if you're a New York state or New York City employee, you can get sent to jail. Has this gone really just too far? Oh, absolutely. No, the insanity is off the rails. Um, 
But, you know, one of, one of the points that I make in my book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, is that censorship, uh, political censorship, is uh, really something that divides people more than anything else. I mean, if people cannot feel free to speak openly to one another, they can't develop relationships. And that's exactly what this uh, machinery of loneliness that is operated uh, by all these woke elites uh, is all about. It's about using identity politics and the, you know, the whole gender thing, the pronouns, uh, protocols you're talking about, uh, and, and you know, punishing people if they, you know, step, if they misstep uh, according to these really unconstitutional uh, policies. And, and so what that does is it takes advantage, it exploits the very natural human fear of ostracism, very natural and powerful impulse to conform out of the fear of being socially rejected, and it exploits and uses that to get people to march in lockstep with them. And unfortunately, lots of Americans have self-censored, have shut, shut up about what they believed or, or even lie about what they believe in order to avoid that. But that, you know, you end up isolating yourself more and all of society uh, if, if you comply with, with that. Well, I guess I'm not complying if I'm doing this show. <laughs> well, that's right, and they're going to try to cancel you for doing it. I know. It's, uh, it, it's a big fight, but it has to be fought. I think the reason it got to this crazy point is that for way too many years, way too many Americans have been obedient to political correctness. They didn't want to make waves, maybe with their neighbors, with, you know, with other people, if they were uh, in, you know, fearful in school of getting a bad grade in college, if they, you know, said something politically incorrect or, or you know, in the corporate world, which has gone all woke now. Uh, but there has to be some major pushback because this path, uh, leads to the end of freedom, no question about it. Well, this is not something that just occurred in the last few years. Throughout human history, there has been some form of this in one way or another, whether it's uh, where you have the, the mean girl in school that everyone follows, uh, mm-hmm. or we can go even further back in history to the Puritans. When they first came over, you had to conform Otherwise, you were part of the Salem witch hunt. Uh, we can go on with example after example where you know people would say, all right, you have to think my way, and there's no mm-hmm. other way to think. Uh, but we've always had someone that was a leader of this. What is different here in our world, not just the United States, but our world, is that there's no one unifying factor for example, under in Germany, it was the Nazis, and it was Hitler who was the leader. You had Mao Zedong. Um, we had someone identifiable, like Stalin. You can put your finger on and say, all right, fine, this is the cause. Let's eliminate that cause and then bring freedom. But there is no one cause. You've got Hollywood. You've got corporate America. Uh, you've got religious institutions. You've got mob rule, which you talk about in your book. Uh, mm-hmm. You have social ostracizing on social media. 
Uh, heaven mm-hmm. forbid. And I've gotten head to head with people on social media, and I get to the point where, all right, fine, you you will have a conversation, all right. But when you drop into that format that Herman Cain put it so perfectly, so absolutely perfectly, you knew you were winning when you had a left loon crazy, uh, and they were trying to make you conform. He said they would always sin. When they knew they were losing the, the argument, they would switch the subject. And when you try to bring them back, they would then ignore the facts. And when they still lose the fight and they find no common ground with you, they would name call you. And that's something else you talk about in the book. The labels they will put on you to ostracize you, to put you away from everyone else and say, if you don't conform, everyone look at what's happening over here to Anne. And if this is happening to her, this can happen to you. Do you want to stand in the corner with a dunce cap on, or do you want to join us and be part of the party people? And that's what you talk about in your book. Yes. Uh, many things that you just said really nailed it. Uh, for example, uh, wokeness. You can't get a more puritanical religion than this woke culture that we're in now. Uh, you know, it, like you said, you'd be uh, well in New York. I had read that it was a fine of um, two hundred fifty thousand dollars if you misgendered someone. Uh, that was, uh, you know, put it put into uh, an ordinance, I guess, or law in uh, 2015. And then, so it's very puritanical. It's very uh, uh, aggressive, and and very, um, you know, take no prisoners. And then. The point you made also about demonization, that is so critical to this leftist, Marxist, woke, whatever you want to call it, movement that is trying to undermine freedom. Uh, Yes, if they lose an argument or they they can't really win real arguments, and increasingly they can't win real elections either. And so everything's got to be rigged. And and so one of the things that, that... uh, they do, uh, have always done, as he said, goes back through history. I go back in my book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, trace the mob rule back to the French Revolution, and um, they had identity politics and political correctness. Uh, they just didn't call it those things, but absolutely, uh, the Jacobin reign of terror was all about that. Um, but demonization is the is absolutely what is used just to call you a name if they if they can't win an argument they will just call names and we we've heard them all bigot hater you know white supremacist they use uh, phobic you know this phobic or that phobic uh, uh, they'll they'll call you a conspiracy theorist an anti-vaxxer uh, the list just goes on and on and on of the name calling and that's that's mm-hmm. All, all they really have, uh, and they use that to to warn others. Look, you're gonna. This is what we're gonna do to you if you don't comply. And um, and so it's that fear of isolation, that fear of being demonized, that is so powerful, and that the left has uh, put to use for a very long time. And I think it's time we wake up to it. I wrote this book so that uh, I could provide at least some kind of a a blueprint for people to understand how these dynamics work. I think we understand them instinctively, but we do not understand them consciously enough. And that's really important because we're at a tipping point now. 
Well, you know, a lot of things. Oh, I'm sorry, Curtis. I just want to get this uh, point of course. A lot of things I noticed as I, through the years. In the 1970s, I saw it seep into our education system as a kid, where they turned around and started to do, oh, you need health, uh, how to teach health in, in school, uh, just to let you know about diseases and things like that. They put their foot in the door, and as the years went, they just pushed that door more and more wide open, where they're teaching transgenderism and all these other perversities in school, and it's supposed to be healthy for the kids to learn about this no you don't no it's not uh they did the same thing with taking out the pledge of allegiance and prayer in school they stepped into college where now more and more liberal professors were in there and heaven forbid you start to challenge them on their positions whether it's political philosophical religious and if you now it's to the point where when you do challenge you fail and i saw it when i worked for uh, American Express, and they did it through donations, and they would say, well, here's your paychecks, but we recommend you donate a certain amount of money to certain organizations, and when I started looking through the list, I'm like, well, that's a liberal organization, that's a liberal, and out of maybe 10 of them, I found one that I actually agreed with. I saw it go in corporate America a long, long time ago. But now it's to the point where wokeism said, if you don't follow the woke path, you're, you're, you, we're going to turn around and turn around and make your business like non-existent. But the opposite, and you write about this in the book, is happening. Look at Ron DeSantis and Disney in Florida. It's backfiring, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sorry. What was that last question? It's, it's... it's backfiring. Isn't it? You see this oh, with Ron DeSantis you know, well, and his handling of Disney? Oh, well, he's, yeah, he's taking him to task. He's, um, as that, he pre- presented that digital bill of rights. And, of course, uh, with the, the, the bill that he had, uh, yeah, with Disney, um, I, when you say it's backfiring, it's backfiring on them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. No, if you take a bold stance, that's what people have to understand. If if enough people take a bold stance, I mean, we have to remember that the people who lead all of this, uh, you know, all of the, these garbage agendas, they're really a tiny minority, these elites that, re, that, you know, they have followers because these are all people who are susceptible to the weaponization of loneliness, highly susceptible and and so they have all these followers who've been conditioned or you know uh, you know in the schools or whatever but if 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 the majority of Americans who really don't agree with this stuff would just speak up you know even just one on one to a neighbor like ooh I'm on the other side of that issue or or just you know in a friendly manner um, and that could create a ripple effect. When people understand, it's really important for people to understand that they are not alone, that these agendas are insane, and most people would not, uh, you know, they, they go against the better judgment of most people, but being silent about it only gives those agendas more oxygen and the people who push them more oxygen. So... Uh, when we shut up about what we believe, we're really doing a lot of the heavy lifting for them, and we've got to stop doing that. <laughs> uh, Curtis, go well, ahead. 
what I was going to say was that we we need to, like you say, be bold and stand up, get a spine, and fight back. And I think at least two of the ways we can fight back is through um, policy or, or legislation and the court system, and um, like we we've done here in Florida. And I mean, we we have enough Republican states led by Republican governors, and if they would all take action, you know, I think we can um, change the narrative across the country. And when we come up with bills, we we need to be like the the Democrats, um, except for we mean what we say. In other words, like they came up with the Affordable Care Act, but it's anything but affordable. Well, we can come up with something like um, um, saving your your, um, First Amendment, you know, rights bill or something like that, or even put it in words, you know, saving your right to speak your mind or something like that, you know, bill. And it'd be, you know, catchy. And um, it would, it would, you know, <laughs> it would light up, you know, people across America. Like, wow, oh. yeah, let's let's save our right to speak. What are, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. No, if we, if you can't, like I said before, if you can't speak openly um, without fear of major retribution, if you can't speak openly, um, you can't develop relationships. So all of this censorship is really about dividing us and putting us into a state of isolation. And you're right uh, that if these states, like, for example, I wrote a piece, uh, I think it was in uh, Daily Caller a couple weeks, uh, about a week ago, on uh, Ron DeSantis' digital bill of rights. Uh, I I think it's a proposal uh, that, you know, to to, uh, preserve uh, the right to, to speak openly, express yourself openly without you know, being canceled. And when I talk about political censorship, you know, I'm not talking about uh, pornography or anything like that. I'm just talking about uh, the world of ideas. We should all be free to have open conversations about uh, the world of ideas, uh, different ideas about policies and agendas and all of that. And uh, if we can't, then that that leads to a lot. That leads to breakdown of society, family breakdown. Uh, you know, I had talked uh, about um, you know where COVID came in and the obedience to the mandates. It wasn't. It oh, yeah. wasn't. It was bad enough that people were being literally isolated in a way that never happened in this country before ever. And they were being literally isolated, separated from loved ones who were dying in the hospital. I mean, really sadistic. You know, cover everybody had to cover up their faces, including little kids, toddlers. Um, and but it, what was even worse was how these policies cultivated hostilities among oh, yeah. family members, among friendships would end. And I believe that was quite deliberate. I don't think that was just an accident or collateral damage. I believe that, as with all kinds of uh, you know draconian agendas like that, they are meant to separate people, to shut people up, and make them more easily controlled. But you're right. If we got things like a digital bill of rights in different states, and different states now are starting to um, you know, clamp down on on the uh, you know the the uh, medical treatment, uh, medical treatments, medical mutilations of children, um, 
you know, say that they, you know, they've already been conditioned to believe that they're uh, transgender and uh, some as young as, you know, 12 or 13 and even before that going up for the blue puberty blockers and all of these uh, medical uh, invasive, uh, you know, forms of, I, I don't even want to call them treatments, but the the what what's happening there is being people are re, responding in different states and a lot of different states are following suit and that's because there were enough bold people who were saying you know this is a hill I'm going to die on uh, this is beyond the pale and I'm going to you know call attention to it uh, people like Matt Walsh um, you know have been able to stand up and uh, bring attention to these things so that uh, that emboldens others. And that's the whole idea, to embolden others to speak yes, up. Is. Now, now I, I remember reading something in my research last night that uh, the House has proposed a bill to do exactly that, a parent's bill of rights. Uh, I, I believe Florida has, has it already. That was the one that they were talking about, the gay bill don't say gay, um, where the parents, hey, listen, are told if the child has a different pronoun or name than what the parent has them registered at. Uh, what was the curriculum in the school? Uh, one woman was sued by a school board because she had the audacity to ask, what is the curriculum being taught to my child? And they said, well, you can give us a FOIA, a Freedom of Information uh, Act uh, summons, and she did file the FOIA, and she gets sued by the school board because she had the audacity to file a FOIA. They will do anything and everything to use whatever tools they have in the power to clamp you down and to place you into an isolated box. They want you alone. They want that loneliness. They want you to feel desperate enough to finally kowtow and conform to them. And that's what you're writing about the book, the danger of this loneliness and COVID just brought it to the forefront. It just showed us exactly what's been happening all this time. That's right. That's right. And and it, it's not unlike, you know, I often use the example, the analogy of Stockholm Syndrome. And that's where you have host, a hostage, uh, you know, the captive, who has been isolated by the by the captor. And then the captive starts to bond with the captor because there's nobody else. And that's exactly the idea is that our, um, you know, the mass state, the, the government, uh, will be our kind of daddy, daddy state. And, um, and that's, that's, it's very much analogous to that. Um, you know, uh, the, the idea is to isolate us, and that's what all you know, all captors do to their captives, their hostages, they make sure that they're isolated. And then they become dependent upon them. And, and, and that's really what's going on here. And they're, you know, creating all kinds of – it's just, it's just horrible. You know, the loneliness epidemic was off the charts even before COVID. And, of course, it's being uh, pushed into hyperdrive now. But I think a lot of people are waking up and, uh, you know, speaking up, which is making a big difference. Well, there's also another penalty to this with this pushing us into isolation and loneliness, and that's the mental health issue. Uh, 
And yeah. you speak about that in the introduction of your book and some extreme examples. But we've seen the rise in suicide rates, especially in children as young as six years old. I mean, oh, when yeah. I read that story about that little girl, it broke my heart. Um, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, domestic violence. We see the rise of this because people are frustrated, they're angry, and what are they going to do? They're going to seek an alternative. They'll still conform, but they'll seek another alternative to take away their pain. And exactly. it, yeah. is, it is it's epidemic level. Yeah. Yeah, it's a form of escapism, and we're seeing it more and more. I mean, you're right. It's really devastating um, what's happening in terms of the statistics for mental uh, health issues and uh, the opioid epidemic. And, you know, people are just trying to escape the pain of isolation. And, uh, you know, that that I think and, – and suicide the suicide rates, just just horrible – and um and and that that's generally what's behind it is the uh the feeling that you're all alone it's unbearable it's an unnatural state for a human being people cannot survive in severe isolation and yet we have all of these policies that push us into isolation if you think about all of these policies over generations that have um broken down the family I mean, that, that's a lot of what we're having to deal with now is there's so much brokenness. And, and that makes children even more vulnerable to these, um, you know, to, to all of this woke conditioning. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, uh, you know, when I wrote this book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, that is what I was, uh, you know, trying to find was a common thread that connected all of these crazy agendas and, of course, all of the despair and the deaths of despair in society. And uh, the common denominator uh, was, you know, this, this isolation that, that we're feeling. You know, they, they've broken down the family unit. Uh, we saw that with Lyndon Johnson with the great experiment he had. Um, we, once we saw now you take the father figure out of the family, now you have a single-parent family. You see an increase in uh, school dropout, alcoholism, domestic abuse, but yet you also see a higher dependency upon government welfare programs. Um, when you put the two parents in there as a healthy family unit, you see a better outcome. But now, as I'm talking to you and as I'm thinking about what you wrote about your book, I've always been disturbed about the increased level of autism. And I'm wondering how that could be tied into either a single parent, parent family or a single child family. Because if we take away that human reaction of siblings uh, mm-hmm. together, I'm wondering how much that would – this is a good question, I think, for a scientific study. Does autism oh, yeah. have a direct link, not just to uh, uh, what they call the, the um, vaccines – uh, like for measles and stuff, uh, but if there's a direct correlation to the inability to interact with a fellow, another sibling. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't have the expertise on autism, but it is uh, frightening to think to see how it has kind of exploded in the past couple of decades. I believe RFK Jr. Um, attributes it to 
I, correct me if I'm mistaken, but I, I believe the Children's Health Defense um, looks at autism as directly connected to vaccines. But I don't know, um, you know, I don't know, I haven't, you know, delved into that issue. Um, but it's, uh, but being alone is going to create all kinds of, of uh, you know, behavioral issues. Uh, it it yeah. always does, even for adults. Uh, and, of course, it would be uh, even more unnatural for a child, you know, just trying to develop and, communi- you know, learn how to communicate and all of that uh, to be in a state of isolation. It's even worse. So, um, you know, they, you can become almost like feral. I have that example of the child <laughs> yes. who was isolated for years in my prologue uh, in the weaponization of loneliness and, and how she just ended up feral. I mean, she just – and, and is, she had no uh, sense of heat and cold. You, you have this sensory deprivation during the monotony of it all. And I think the schools now – children experience a lot of monotony uh, in addition to all of this woke indoctrination they they're bored their natural curiosity seems to have been kind of gutted out of them um it, it's really it's really tragic well i'm looking down to the last few minutes i just wanted to make another comment because it's something i talk about a lot uh, we've become a disposable society we as human beings, we normally are herd animals, but we've become a disposable society, and we've seen this uh, through the uh, massive demonstrations for pro-choice, where human life no longer has much meaning. It doesn't matter that it's not you know, fully mature, uh, but it's still a human life. It, life has become disposable with now the, all our smart devices, where human action Face-to-face contact is no longer as prevalent as it used to be. And it drives me nuts when you go to a restaurant and you see people dining together, but both of, everyone's face is inside their smart device. There's no conversation going back, no interaction of ideas, thoughts, emotions, or even human touch. So this is another form of isolation. So oh, you have yeah. something like TikTok becomes more important to the person than the person living with you in the same household. Oh, this yeah. Is something else no, you write about, the social inter- interactions. That's absolutely right. Uh, there is this push to have us accept virtual life instead of real life. Uh, you know, that whole push with the metaverse and all this uh, 3D virtual reality. And during COVID, when people were isolated in their homes, um, they would, and, and of course, children in schools, everything had to be done online, and so we were kind of stuck to our screens, and I believe deliberately. Uh, and you're right, this, this, uh, this is something I've written about, uh, the loss of real human contact through these, this virtual reality that's being pushed on us and getting stuck into our devices. There, there was a Canadian communications professor, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with him, in the 1960s, named Marshall McLuhan, who wrote a book called The Medium is the Message. And his argument was that it's not so much the content of the media that affects us, but it's the medium itself 
that seems to change us. And he could foresee, uh, you know, at the time the most uh, advanced communication tool was television, and mm-hmm. and he felt that people were more uh, changed by the actual medium of television, uh, even more so than what they were watching on it. So, uh, you know, I think that was a very interesting theory, and I think uh, he, when it comes to the most recent communications uh, technologies, he was absolutely right. Yeah. Now, I, as you were talking, I found... I found the bill that I was talking about. Newsmax had the article up there yesterday. Uh, Jeffrey Rodak wrote it, uh, that the House passed a parental and trans sports bills that would bar transgender women and girls from participating in school sports and would also give parents greater control over K-12 through curriculum, which includes being notified if there's a change in the, the pronoun or whatever it is that the parent mm-hmm. is unaware of. So... There is pushback, and that is a good sign. Well, that's a good sign, even though it won't get through the Senate, and, of course, uh, the president won't sign it. But but it is a good sign. Uh, I understand that the Supreme Court is going to be taking on the issue of uh, girls' and women's sports as well. Uh, I just saw something about that today. So, uh, you know, there is pushback, and, and there needs to be more. But it's good that we're seeing it. It is. And people can find you uh, under your name, Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A, Morabito, M-O-R-A-B-I-T-O, and they can read your writings. They can get your book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, which is also up on Amazon, and they can get it on Kindle. Uh, So I encourage them to read the book and find out how they can fight back. Thank you so much, Annie. Oh, it has been my pleasure, and I hope you come back soon. Oh, thank you. It was great talking to you. Take care, and God bless. And don't forget to turn your clock back. Uh, uh, Okay. (laughs) Daylight savings time. (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. Check out Stella's book. It's up on Amazon, The Weaponization of Loneliness. We've got our next two victims in on at the same time. We've got Mark Tapscott of the Epic Times and Kevin Schmidt of Americans for Prosperity. And I did this because Mark, in a way, wrote about something that Kevin has been working on. So good afternoon, Mark, and how are you today? Well, I am great, and I'll tell you, I'm really pleased to hear that you had Stella on just now. She is, uh, that book, her Weaponization of Loneliness, that is a great and an important book. Yeah, and I'm encouraging everyone to pick it up and read it because then all of a sudden they'll realize how they're being brainwashed and how they're being shoehorned into a certain yeah. idea, openness, and we've got to fight back. And matter of fact, yeah. uh, there is a bill, uh, Joe Wilson, uh, Joe, you lie, Wilson, <laughs> every time I see yeah. him I do that. He loves it. He smiles. Um, Put forth a bill for making it a right-to-work state. No more forced unionization, that you have the right to choose to be unionized or not. And if we can break the biggest union in the United States, which is the teachers' union, we might be able to start taking our country back. And they are the largest uh, donators to the Democratic Party, the teachers' union. So, folks... 
we got to break the union back just the same way that Ronald Reagan broke the um, uh, the uh, was it the uh, air traffic controllers. But at the same time, we want to welcome Kevin Schmidt of Americans for Prosperity. Good afternoon, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, one of the reasons why I brought you and Mark at the same time, I'm glad I had the two of you together, is that you have been filing a lot of uh, FOIA things uh, with the the federal government and everyone else, just trying to open up and to get information on all the little projects that you work on over at Heritage, because you are the director of investigations at at the foundation focusing on healthcare, veterans issues, corporate welfare, and immigration. Uh, so when I saw you and Mark, I said, oh, no, I've got to put the two of you together because you've been asking for, and you did this last year, and I don't know why no one followed up on this, the official reason for canceling key oil and gas leases. And we're listening to Biden, who wants to raise taxes on oil production as well as gas stations and everything and heating oil and bankrupt the average American. And here there's a key piece of information out there through a FOIA Act. And this is an article that I think, Mark, you've touched on in the past too. Yes, indeed, I have. So we'll let Kevin go first. Sure. So we, uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation, we submitted a couple of FOIA requests, if you, if you recall, back, and I think it was in May of 2022, on accident, the Biden administration announced that they were canceling oil and gas leases in Alaska and the Cook Inlet and also in the Gulf of Mexico. And they did this by accidentally emailing a CBS News reporter. This was Gina McCarthy back when she was in the White House saying that those leases were not moving forward. And so they had to sort of backfill a reason for doing so, because obviously it looked bad. And they landed on lack of industry interest, which of course just seems ridiculous on its face. But we submitted a FOIA request to the Department of Interior, the Office of the Secretary, and a second one to uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And what we found through those documents from BOEM, uh, uh, the, the second agency I mentioned there, was that they made it up. They had been they've been talking about reasons for they they had talked about canceling the lease since January of twenty two, five months before they did it. They had a variety of reasons, five including they had a set of talking points. Industry industry interest was not mentioned on any of them. And it was not mentioned at all until they wrote the press release the day of canceling the lease. So they basically lied to the American people. Uh, while they were training the, strate- the Strategic Petroleum Reserve during that year, while they were uh, telling us that gas prices are such a problem, we needed to do something about them, they were, on the other hand, canceling leases and lying to us about why they were doing it. Gee, Mark, they lied to us? I can't believe it. I, honestly, they really did it, didn't they, Mark? Wow. Man, <laughs> Mark, they, I, I can't Mark believe it. <laughs> I, I tell you, we go way that, back, Mark. That is a that is a great story. I'm, I'm amazed that I missed it somehow. Well, so the reason I, I, can, I can explain part of it. So we, we published that on americansforprosperity.org. Part of the reason it didn't get picked up is that it was right after that, the inf- when, within the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, Senator Manchin made sure, made sure to get these in there, is that they, he required Boehm to hold these leases after the administration canceled them. So they are uh, – they've begun – doing the steps to actually uh, hold those leases in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska now. So the problem was sort of solved. There's other issues there. The administration is also 
uh, almost a year behind on doing its five-year offshore leasing plan, which it's required to do by law. So, I mean, yeah. you get a small win there, and then there's another area where they're dragging their feet on. Well, even if they've, um, you know, uh, tried to, to to backtrack on it, the fact remains, at least as you have described it, that um, somebody was trying to pull the wool over the public's eyes about uh, what was really going on. And I'm wondering if uh, anybody has been disciplined for that. Anybody in the federal government, I mean. Oh, I'm sure they haven't. What I, what I can tell you is that it seems like from the work that we did, because we got those FOIA documents without a lawsuit from Boehm. And yeah, that, most, that's most Yeah, and most recently, Boehm came out with, uh, ac- they accidentally released a memo basically showing that the Biden administration should be doing some more leasing and there was ways to do it by lowering the, lo- the, uh, the royalty rate paid by oil companies to the government. They chose not to do that. But Boehm supposedly, right. according to reporting, accidentally released that memo. So it seems to me, and I'm reading sort of between the tea leaves and speculating here, is that based on their, they're giving us documents in a fairly short amount of time, which is, as you know, Mark, very well, that it's very unusual for a federal agency to give you those documents without a lawsuit. That yeah. it seems like there are folks within Boehm that are upset with how the Department of the Interior, the Secretary, the political folks, and the Biden administration are handling this. Yeah, absolutely, because um, it is it is very much the case um, you can file an FOI in an agency, and uh, in some agencies, not all of them, but in some of them, um, there are a number of people who may or may not uh, actually end up processing it. And if you get lucky and somebody who uh, is reasonably honest, as this person apparently was dealing with your request, um, you get documents that um, <laughs> you probably would otherwise have to sue for. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's too often the case that um, people in the government know that uh, individuals and foundations that uh, submit Freedom of Information Act requests frequently don't have the legal resources to take the government to court, as the FOI provides for them to do. And even if they do take them to court, you know, the government's lawyers never run out of money. So uh, it, it's 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 great that you got those documents, and um, I suspect there's probably more information there to come. Well, you know, Kevin, you've been working, like I said, on health care, which is a priority issue to a vast growing number of Americans as we age. Uh, but, Mark, you wrote a very interesting article, which actually rocked me, uh, about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, where you talk about the $3 billion drug uh, prescription price fixing effort by the Biden administration, which has been enacted. And now all of a sudden, Congress, who voted for the bill is saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe we made a mistake. You've got an excellent article about this where the House and Senate are now challenging the bill. Tell us what is wrong with this section of the bill. Well, I mean, fundamentally what is wrong with it is it awards the power to unaccountable bureaucrats in the Department of Health and Human Services to effectively bully the um, um, pharmacy, pharmaceutical industry to um, accept um, significantly lower prices than the pharmaceutical industry will claim 
uh, it costs them to produce uh, specific drugs. And, and what that will do is it'll either, um, it probably will end up making it more difficult to get um, the drugs that are covered by it, which in turn will then force up the price, even in spite of the government's efforts. Uh, so you'll, you know, as classically happens when government price controls are involved, uh, you either have uh, a scarcity or you have higher prices. And that's that's what will happen with uh, this particular program. Yeah, because they're sidestepping the regular order of uh, business, and right. they're setting aside taxpayer dollars, our dollars, with absolutely no reporting mechanism, and nothing to prevent any waste, nothing to prevent any fraud or abuse. But, oh, gee, didn't we see that with the uh, COVID unemployment and the PPE, therefore people getting other money from COVID, and, gee, didn't we see massive fraud there? But we're not going to see any problems here at all. Are we going to see anything here, Kevin? Nothing to worry about. I mean, I think there's a lot to worry about, and that's uh, not even the biggest thing within the Inflation Reduction Act. There was a, there's a $27 billion for a so-called green bank where they're going to disperse money to target areas across the country. They're still working out where they're going to spend it now, and recipients have until 2031 to spend the money. So they're just going to be sitting on billions of dollars that if you wanted it to have an impact to make on green technology, you want them to spend it quicker. But apparently the administration decided that giving folks eight years – to spend this pot of money is, is something that's going to help us, and I think that's just dead wrong. And I, and I think just like with uh, with that healthcare fund that, that Mark talked about, it's going to be filled with waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, here is what really got me. And Mark, I, I, when I read these numbers you wrote about, my jaw dropped. Now they're targeting 50 specific drugs. All right, uh, there's really I don't see a true way in how they determine exactly what these. They just say they're trying to enforce lower prescription prices on 50 drugs presently covered under Medicare Part B and D. So, folks, if you're out there with Medicare Part B and D, you're going to be in for a, a big problem because there will be 10 Part D drugs for 2026, another 15 for 2027, another 15 uh, for Part D and B in 2028. It's going to go on and on and on. Um, the number of drugs... Uh, they're supposed to negotiate the prices. However, if if they participate in this program and say, like, fine, Medicare is still going to carry our drugs, they're going to get hit with an excise tax that is set at 65% of a product's U.S. sales and increases by 10% annually to a maximum of 95% tax, excise tax. Now, Mark, the company is going to be paying this excise tax just them, right? It's not going to be the person purchasing the drugs. No, no. The cost doesn't come down to us at all, does it? Hear the sarcasm? As, as <laughs> President Reagan, who I worked for for five years before becoming a journalist, um, as he often said, the price of the tax is always passed on to the consumer. Corporations don't pay taxes. They, they collect them, in effect. Uh, for the government. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So now, Kevin, under this program, if a company does drop out of there and say, all right, fine, we don't care if Medicare covers our drugs, now that means that they can market the drugs at whatever price they want and still the drug cost will not come down. Am I looking at this correctly? 
Yeah, I think Mark covered the the economics pretty good. Is I mean, the the folks in the government they never consider trade-offs. You know, you can't have something for free. You can't cap the cost of drugs and not have a negative consequence. And the folks that are uh, the companies that might consider taking the money and capping the drugs, they might have to trade off on that. And what they might trade is we might not uh, we might lower investment on different drugs in the future. We might look at uh, drugs that we're making now that are not profitable. We might want to get rid of. So there's lots of uh, negative outcomes that can come from this that I just don't think Congress or the president considered when they passed this bill. So in other words, if there's a potential for a drug to cure cancer or reverse Alzheimer's or even reverse aging, if there's this wonderful drug out there, or even to stop people having a specific type of epileptic fit, then maybe it's like only 1% of 1% of our society. Those drugs will never get made and those that need them the most will never benefit for, from the potential innovation and and benefits of these wonderful medications and it, they're shooting they're shooting the horse they're riding on yeah i mean i think go ahead mark no, i'm sorry kevin that that is a great analogy annie shooting the horse that they're riding on and you know, unintended consequences of government actions, uh, unfortunately, are all too familiar. Um, you know, we can think of many, many examples of where the government issues a rule that is intended to do uh, one thing and ends up causing the opposite or worse. Yeah. I, 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 I'm always flabbergasted when I see a government says, oh, this is going to help everyone. And when you stop and actually read the bill, you go, what are you thinking? Who told you what's inside the bill? And that's the whole thing. Someone tells them what's inside the bill, and they leave out the really juicy, juicy salacious parts. Um, I recently had a conversation with my local state legislator, and we were asking her about a specific bill that was being proposed. And she said, well, I have been told. Well, wait a minute. You haven't read the bill yet. She goes, no, it just came out. I haven't read it, but I have been told. Well, before you vote on it, could you be kind enough to read it? Uh, Would that be asking too much, Kevin? I mean, the the issue is that, I mean, the budget process, the bill process in Congress is completely broken. I mean, they, they, mm-hmm. Congress has, you know, most of a, a year to get these budgets done. They have as much time as they want to do these massive bills like the Inflation Reduction Act, and they choose to pass them, uh, you know, in a week or a couple of days and release the text, sometimes the night before. And, and I think that's just not right. I mean, I think they should be forced, you know, they should have to read the bills and find out what's in them before they pass them. I think that's that's obvious. But I think we need leadership in Congress that's willing to give folks either the amount of time to read it or at least focus on bills that are smaller and take pieces smaller at a time, as opposed to shoving any, everything into these big, huge bills where no one's able to understand it before they're allowed to vote on it. Well, Mark, wasn't it Nancy Pelosi, or as I call her, Nasty Pelosi, uh, that said, we've got to pass the bill so that you would know what's in it, uh, Obamacare? <laughs> and at that time she said it. I had a copy. I had downloaded a copy of the House version of Obamacare and the Senate version, and I actually wrote a couple of blogs about it and parts of the bill that were completely unconstitutional. And that was before she even said that. But yet that seems to be the battle cry that we hear now in our government. 
you got to pass it before we know what's in it. How do we get them to know what's in it before they pass it? Can we ever do that? Well, yeah, if um, we have leadership, as Kevin was pointing out, that will actually require members to do what House rules have required, and I think Senate rules as well, uh, for um, quite some time, that uh, there be three days between when a bill is introduced and when it's actually voted on. And that three days is intended to give the members time to read it or to at least have their staffs read and give them, um, you know, a good briefing on it. Um, it. It all comes down to, in the final analysis, with anything in Congress, whether or not Congress decides to follow its own rules. And with that, Annie, I have to sign off. I, I apologize, but I've got to go to no. a hearing in about 10 minutes. Good. Enjoy, and I look forward to uh, reading your future articles up at the Epic Times and let people know you're also the founder of Hill Faith, bringing faith to the Hill. And we need a lot of that right now, Mark. And God bless you, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin, keep up the uh, great work. And, Curtis, it's good to hear your voice again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good to hear your voice, Mark. (laughs) Bye-bye. Well, Kevin, uh, one of the things that you're working on, and – when COVID broke out, a lot of states suspended their certificate of need dealing with medical facilities and and medical services. Um, here in South Carolina, I've got my state legislature and possibly state senator proposing legislation to permanently suspend the certificate of need here in South Carolina because locally I saw an explosion of medical facilities that we you had to travel 45 minutes. And now I can only travel, I need only travel seven miles down the road to get the help I need. Explain exactly what a certificate of need is and what it can encompass. Sure. So a certificate of need is what you, is uh, what healthcare providers need if they are going to open a new facility, whether it's a hospital or surgery center, uh, or if they uh, have an existing facility, if they want to add beds or add equipment. So basically you can't, it's uh, essentially a business license on steroids that allows competitors to intervene in your business. So if you want, say you want to open a hospital in South Carolina, first you need uh, approval within what's called the state health plan. The state health plan uses a, conv- a convoluted formula informed, informed by your competitors. And it says we need, we need a number, uh, we need, say we need 10 beds in X county. It would say something like that. But if that's not there, if there's no need for your service in that PDF document, you can't win. You can't get a con. But if, if, if for some reason there is a need for your service, you can apply for a certificate of need. And then at that point, even if it's granted to you, your competitors can take you into litigation. They can challenge it all the way up to the state Supreme Court. We've seen cases in South Carolina go on for more than a decade. And it took a hospital that was needed in 2004, 2005, and it didn't open until this past uh, September of 2022. So what it is, it's, it's essentially a competitor tax. It's a, it's a, a, a program, a central uh, planning-driven program, where the state and your competitors can control whether or not you get to work in healthcare. Well, you wrote an absolutely excellent article along with uh, Thomas Kimbrell, uh, dealing with this in the world's wa- world, Wall Street Journal, teeth and backwards today. It was titled "COVID Exposed the Damage Done by Certificate of Need Rules," and. Um, 
what I found interesting, and you're right about this in North Carolina, I would love to know what, what the stats were here in South Carolina, that North Carolina prevented at least $1.5 billion in medical innovation between 2012 and 2022. Um, right now, um, people employed or by or affiliated with existing healthcare providers make up approximately 60% of the State Health Coordinating Council. Now, what is a State Health Coordinating Council so people can understand what it is that here in North Carolina, for example, they have to go through, and states that have certificate needs have some form of this. It may have a different name, but some form of this. Sure. So, I mean, it, it differs by the state. Normally, these sort of, of councils are what put together that state health plan that I mentioned. So that means they usually meet annually or every certain couple of years, and they decide using the data that they want to use to put into the formulas to decide which services are needed for those next few years. And we've seen it in South Carolina and in other states is that it's basically a garbage in, garbage out system. So they put in the data that they want to get the outcome they want, which is less competition for their services that they provide. And to touch base on uh, the, the numbers in South Carolina, we did do numbers in South Carolina for 2018 to 2021. Uh, we found, uh, $429 million was either denied or stuck in litigation. So that's just over a three-year period. So we did, we did 10 years for North Carolina. For the three years in South Carolina, almost half a billion dollars. Now, when you have the existing core providers and institutions provide, providing guidance in these coordination councils, you know, state health coordinating councils, whatever they call them, and I thought it was very clever when you wrote, it would be like forcing 7-Eleven to get permission from Wawa um, and Circle K before opening a new store. So you've got, say, for example, an orthopedic practice, and someone wants to open a competing one in another part of the same county, borough, parish, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so if you've got leadership already in that council you can block that other facility from even opening, much less the do any doctor opening their practice. Right, and you can do it one of two ways. You can either do it up front, which is by making sure there's no need determination in those state health plans, or on the back end by taking them or threatening to take them in, in litigation if they do apply for a, a con and then receive one. So, I mean, it, it's really a, a competitor-controlled process, and this is part of the reason why we see in a number of states, including South Carolina, that – uh, you see folks that don't apply, and it's hard to see that, but you, you've seen folks withdraw their applications after a competitor says, we're going to oppose your application. Uh, for example, we did a similar report in West Virginia. There was $44 million of healthcare investment where they threw away their application fees. There's thousands of dollars of ap application fees with these. They threw that money away and took, took back their application rather than try to go through a, a contested application where their competitors were going to take them into litigation. Wow. And, and wait a minute. Oh, who's behind these certificate needs? Gee, let's go back to the 1970s and the federal government. And they That's tied right. federal, federal funds into this. So if you want to open a facility, uh, you can do that, and we'll give you money to help open it. But you have to follow the certificate of needs. So if you're the first urologist in the area or the first optometrist in the area, you can get your certificate of need and then block any additional individuals from practicing that. That's exactly yeah, how it's, it's coming out now, isn't it? 
I mean, exactly. I mean, and, and the Feds instituted it in 1974. What's interesting is that they sort of reversed course on that. In 1987, they got rid of that mandate because they found out it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And ever since then, uh, two agencies within the federal government, the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice Antitrust Division, have been pretty much unanimous across administrations, Republican and Democrat, that these laws are bad and states should repeal them. So uh, there, there are statements from those agencies, from the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, uh, the Bush administration, and the Trump administration, all decrying these laws and telling states to get rid of them. So this is a rare issue where the federal government is actually correct, even though they, they started the problem, but they've sort of come around to <laughs> nah. right thinking on this. <laughs> no, they didn't start this. No, not at all. <laughs> but, uh, but what happened was with COVID now, because we need facilities because of so many people needed to be tested. So many people needed extra hospital beds and everything. We didn't have in enough. A lot of states suspended them. Some of them are starting to put them back in place. But like I said, here in South Carolina, they're working on regis- legislation to permanently suspend them. And what we're finding is, is that it's not covering all of the needs, but it's opening the door because you still have rural areas that don't have doctors or nurses practicing out there. So we're relying on traveling doctors, traveling nurses, and they're few and far between because now they're stuck with the rules and regulations of Obamacare. Now, here it ties into the certificate of needs, but it's great to have new facilities open. But if your doctor doesn't have the time to spend with you like they normally would, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's right. Con- re- repealing these bad laws won't fix everything in healthcare. There's there, there's other things that can help, like expanding telehealth, allowing providers to provide telehealth over state lines. There's a scope of practice reform where you can allow nurses to, to fully uh, do their scope of work with patients. So there's there's lots of other things that can be done to help people uh, get more access to healthcare. Certificate of need is one of them. It is not the only thing. Uh, getting rid, getting rid of those laws. So yeah, I, I agree with you. There's lots of things that can be done, but you know, the rural healthcare issue is the main thing that the hospital associations usually try to rely their arguments on here. But it's there's no peer-reviewed research. There's no research that shows that states with con laws are able to, to to keep their rural hospitals. In fact, I mean, South Carolina and North Carolina and other states we looked at, they're they're losing rural hospitals just as fast, if not faster, than non-con states. So what what really should be done is along with repealing the law wholesale, if that can't be done, at, at the very least, we're seeing states uh, exempt opening new rural hospitals from this process, or at least removing their fees for doing so. And that's, and that's something that we can uh, take hope in. Kevin, is there no constitutional, is there no constitutional remedy that we can use to fight this? I mean, after all, we were formed as a free market system Right. I mean, yeah, no, no. If there was a a remedy, constitutional remedy for this. No, that's a very good question. And and, and a couple of states in Kentucky and North Carolina and a few others, there are cases uh, pending, including in in Mississippi, brought by other uh, uh, nonprofit law firms like Pacific Legal Foundation and the Institute for Justice, making this exact this exact argument that, you know, you can't keep us out of this market, this healthcare market because there's no rational reason to do so. But unfortunately, uh, within courts, federal courts especially, there's what's called rational basis review. And what it basically means is that the government just has to say they had a reason to do this and they win. 
and that's what we're that's what we're fighting against. There are a couple of cases where there's some there's some better chances for winning there, but for the most part, these challenges to certificate of need laws in state and federal courts have failed, and it looks like the only real uh, recourse that folks have is reforming or repealing these laws. Wow, I mean, there's so much more to talk about when it comes to healthcare, and it, like I said, it, it's something that every one of us is going to need in one form or another throughout our entire lives. And with an aging population, uh, it's going to be an even growing more need of that. And the biggest thing I'm hearing from a lot of doctors is the tangling of federal uh, paperwork required. And because there's so many regulations now on the insurance industry requiring to be having their paperwork to cover their assets, um, Doctors are being inundated, and medical facilities and staff are being hit with so much work. Um, I thought I read somewhere that they have to take one entire day just to do it uh, in order to file everything. How do we cut all that red tape, and how do we bring it back? Do we go after the insurance industry? Do we go after the federal government for overregulating the insurance industry? Do we, what do we do? Where do we even start this fight? Well, I mean, I think I think it's both. But one thing that we could do is is try to sort of get the insurance industry and the government out of sort of day-to-day healthcare decisions. And I think what one of the ways you can do that is there's things called health savings accounts, and that allows people to go to their provider and use their uh, pre-tax dollars to pay for healthcare. The problem is only 10% of Americans have these, and they're, you can only get them if you have a certain type of healthcare, a high deductible plan. Uh, and so my, my colleagues at, are, at Americans for Prosperity, they, they have uh, what's called the personal option, a, a suite of reforms to health care that would help sort of open up the supply side and allow people to get more personalized care. One of those things through those HSAs, because you shouldn't need, uh, you know, a top tier gold plated insurance plan or even Medicare or Medicaid just to go see a doctor for an annual checkup. If, you, uh, if more folks would be able to go in there and use an HSA or even just you know, pay with cash or, or cards for, for a reasonable fee, I think freeing that from insurance would save everyone money in the long run. But for the most part, that's very difficult to do. Now, the HSA, I have a big issue with because when they came out the first time, and I followed up every once in a while, the um, interest they pay on your money is so low. It makes no sense to even open them. You're better off throwing that same money into a savings account and pulling it out of a regular savings account because you get a much higher return. So how can we turn that interest earned on the HSA into something that's equal to or greater than a regular savings account? Uh, well, I think the, the the main benefit is that it's it's pre it's pre-tax dollars. So I think the at least my understanding is that you would get more money by not paying taxes on that money you put in the HSA. It might have been different uh, back then when it first passed, but my understanding is that you get more out of it using from the pre-tax than you would from a, a savings account uh, comparison. Well, I'm not sure because then you would have to have a tremendous amount of money stuck in there. Say, for example, you have someone with only $5,000 in there. You're talking about maybe at the end of the year – between three to five hundred dollars you've earned in interest and what you pay on three to five hundred dollars in taxes is so nominal and still the return is at a better rate that it's worth it i mean well i mean that could be i'd have to look into that a little bit more but my, i mean uh, the idea isn't to have you know some, some, uh, 
it's for emergencies, number one, but I think the problem is that you should have the option to do it. And the federal government right now prohibits most Americans from having this option. And they could choose either through a savings account, as you said, or they could choose an HSA if they think that works better for them. And right now, only 10% of folks have that option. And I think we should have the government be unleashing options for healthcare instead of restricting them. All right. Well, you had mentioned also paying with the card. Now, there are uh, certain companies out there that, spe- uh, the, that specialize in the healthcare industry, credit accounts. Uh, I have one of them called Care Credit, but they limit it based upon your credit rating. So it does help for minor things like a dental visit, but when it comes up to something for larger care, uh, there's no, no fallback. Uh, is there something in your proposal to help boost that? Uh, not that I'm aware of in terms of uh, getting insurance. I mean, I, the idea is that uh, with HSAs or, or for just paying is that, as you mentioned, there's regulations, there's tons of paperwork that government payers, insurance payers have to deal with. And so th- on the lower cost items like annual visits or annual checkups, things like that, things like like where you go, you get an oil change at, at the car shop, you don't use your car insurance for that. Just anywhere where you can get the bureaucracy out of the way and get the care you want and just and pay with the money you have, I think is potentially beneficial for all sides. Yeah, it used to be where you walked in, you and the doctor had a conversation, you were taken care of, and boom. But now you have to get approval, you have to wait, you have to find out whether or not your insurance is going to cover it. There are so many roadblocks placed between the patient and the caregiver uh, that it, it's impossible. And you mentioned about cost cutting. The biggest place to co- cut costs is in the paperwork and the regulations, and we just hope government wakes up. Oh, yeah, right, government will ever wake up, or at least the public wakes up enough to demand that this be eliminated, and the first step would be the certificate of need to allow more facilities to allow competition in pricing. I mean, that's right, and, and another thing about the cost-cutting and the waste of money is that when you have all these healthcare firms and healthcare providers fighting in, in the court system and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on litigation and on expert witnesses, that's money that's not spent on patients. That's money that's not spent on upgrading their facilities or do, doing more to make sure they can do things more efficiently. So if you cut this, this certificate of need regulation, you're, you're putting money back in the system just by doing that because they're not, they're not wasting their money every year on the activities uh, related to certificate of need. Yeah. What I also found is that when COVID hit and the certificate of needs you know, went away, certain practices that were small ended up uh, joining together into a either conglomerate or unifying. And that was something that it with getting rid of the certificate of need, if you had a struggling practice but he was a good doctor, let them move over and join into a new practice without proving you needed another doctor or nurse practitioner or therapist or whatever it is. That's right. It, it, it hampers mobility. It hampers agility of the healthcare market to respond to pandemics, to re, to respond to the surge in demand for services. I know in the last hour with your last guest, you talked about mental health, and what we saw with with uh, health, mental health across the country is that there's a massive shortage of mental health facilities for for children and for adults. Uh, I won't forget this headline we saw in Michigan, which was kids wait stacked up in emergency departments with mental health issues there, and we found there was a a moratorium in Arkansas where they won't allow any healthcare, uh, mental health care treatment for kids to be built at all. They've been, they've been at 12 facilities since 2008. 
and the certificate of need in South Carolina also covers these services. And we're sitting here at massive shortfalls at, at needed services for kids, and we're not allowed to build them. And we just have to deal with the fact that we're overrunning our emergency rooms that are not equipped to care with, for people with mental health issues. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot by not allowing folks to build mental health care facilities. And that brings us problems down the line because as these children grow older, if they grow older, because we hear about younger and younger children committing suicide, becoming addicted to drugs, runaways, um, uh, addictions uh, at younger and younger ages, um, when they get older, they're no longer adjusted to blend into society and they become outcasts and loners, which becomes disruptive to society. Uh, there's so many consequences that because of a single action in front snowballs down and it creates a torrent of other problems later on. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that shows the importance of, you know, all the facilities that are covered by CON affect people's personal health, whether it's hospitals, whether it's surgery centers, mental health facilities, uh, drug rehab facilities. These are all things that are integral to people's mental health and the well-being in their lives. And if we create artificial shortages or push up the prices of these services, then people suffer. And one direct example that we saw in West Virginia was that West Virginia University Cancer Center, they wanted to launch a lung cancer screening unit that that was mobile. It was going to be a truck. It would go to counties around uh, the state that did not have lung cancer screening. And they had grant funding so that they could help anyone who could not pay. They They would be paid for. But under the certificate of need law there, a hospital that does lung cancer screening took them to court for three years, made them pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation fees, delayed the opening, the the use of their truck for for lung cancer screening by years. And what we know about lung cancer and other cancers is that early detection is key. So by delaying that by three years under the con process, they probably killed people. People probably died because of that. And, of course, then the hospital that's doing the lawsuit uh, does, is not responsible for the death. No, no one, no one is is held responsible for those deaths. I mean, that's right. I mean, they, all they all they they're all they can say is that you know we have this legal Oops. legal route to do this. There's no real uh, shame in the fact that that they they stopped a mobile lung cancer unit that was going to serve poor people in rural counties that did not have access to this care before that were not going to that hospital for those services because they couldn't afford it. Mm. And this is something that we see in every state with these certificate need laws. There's needed services that people want to help improve their lives, either closer to their house or something that they can afford. And, you know, another example, we see these with, with birthing centers around, around the country. Folks want alternatives to going to hospitals to give birth. But the problem with birthing centers is to get a certificate of need for those, for example, in Georgia, you have to have a hospital basically sponsor you as a transfer entity. If there's a health issue, you need a transfer agreement with the hospital. And if none of the hospitals agree to give you that, you can't open. Well, one of the things I saw that really uh, gave me was that prior to having a certificate, now with the certificate of need, prior to a suspension, uh, you had physical therapy uh, facilities, um, and they were very limited on whether or not they can offer you know, additional services outside of regular physical therapy. But when the certificate of need was suspended here in South Carolina, these physical therapy facilities 
just blew and grew because now they can say, all right, here's an alternative to going to the gym. You have the physical therapist staff on hand in case there's any problems, and you're not paying a whole big, large gym membership, and maybe your medical insurance will give you a discount or cover it. So now they have two facilities in one, a gym that people can go to and do the normal exercises under the supervision of physical therapists or physical therapy. And I thought that was brilliant, but that could be all lost if we don't eliminate the certificate of need. Yeah, that's right, because it, it, it regulates every service just about and most of the healthcare settings that you're in. If you're at the hospital, that bed you're in is, is regulated by a certificate of need. If you go get an x-ray, generally that's covered by a certificate of need. You can't replace an x-ray machine without, uh, without approval from the government. If you're going to have surgery, if there's a surgery center in that hospital, that's covered. If you're doing any sort of rehab work, that's, that's also covered. Everything, there, there could be more and better practices, more streamlined to better, better serve patients without these rules and regulations. But folks, especially in the hospital industry and elsewhere, just don't want to get rid of it. Well, I want to change the subject just a little bit here and uh, go over immigration. And when I, when I read this article and I turned on Newsmax just to take a look at it, I just kind of like cracked up. As you can tell, I'm originally from New York. So it, it just said, you know, only in New York can they do this. Uh, Mayor Adams, Eric Adams, uh, took this policy with the illegal immigration. Oh, we're a sanctuary city. Come on, bring, bring them in. We'll welcome these immigrants. We're, we're welcoming them left and right. Now all of a sudden he's inundated with them and he's upset because now the city's overflowed with these illegal immigrants and they don't have the facilities or the ability to handle the influx. So what does he do? He rips Vice President Harris for not doing anything about the migrant crisis. Meanwhile, he assisted the migrant crisis by welcoming them into the city. <laughs> you must be hitting your head against the wall when you look at the policies that this administration has put out there in handling this influx of illegal immigration. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's right. We have a, you know, a border that's not secure which obviously we, we need to work on, and it doesn't seem like we have administrations that are, that are interested in doing so. But there's also there's a problem of, uh, you know, Im- immigration, the legal immigration and the legal immigration system is also backlogged because, as you know, the federal government does not do anything well. And I can, I can give you a few examples of that, which is that, uh, it, for example, legal immigrants, people that are here legally, they just now started taking credit card payments for, uh, for them to be here J- just uh, last year. I'm not kidding. So you have this issue where you have uh, an easy way to get in the country illegally right now, an open border, essentially, but there's no good way, no orderly, pro- uh, orderly process way to get in the country legally. It's very restrictive. It's very hard to do. So if you combine those two things, very difficult to get in legally much easier to get in illegally, you get what we're seeing in the last couple of years, which is a surge of illegal immigrants. And it doesn't really serve the country and what we need. No, it doesn't. And we've had several guests on who had come here to the United States uh, with a visa, attempted to become legal immigrants, and ended up spending years and untold thousands and thousands of dollars just to become legal residents, which 
three people I've talked to have been able to do it, but it is a time-consuming and very expensive pro- uh, process. I mean, my own Uncle Mike, and this was before we had these immigration policies uh, put in place, uh, was denied entry into the United States. Meanwhile, his three sisters were here. But yet now, under today's rules and regulations, because he's already got family here, he just dovetails in. There's no rhyme or reason to the immigration policies. Yeah, that's right. And what what also happened, what also backed everything up is most of these consulates and immigration offices, they closed during COVID. And they closed for much longer than other government offices have. So that puts, you know, it created massive backlogs. And it leads to a, a situation where these folks that have been waiting in line and folks that it probably should be here if it was done in an orderly fashion would have already been here. And that just creates bad incentives for everybody. And the problem is uh, the federal agency that deals with this, the Citizenship and Immigration Services, they're, uh, they're not rewarded for good service. They're not, that's not what their focus is. Their focus is to make sure they get enough fees to fund their agency because they're funded by fees and generally not by Congress, although they're, they've been asking for bailouts for, for years, year after year. But they're, they have not reformed their operation in 30 years. They're still mostly a paper agency. And people uh, across the country are trying to get family here or folks that are in line to get in here legally are, are suffering for it. I mean, th- this is people's livelihoods. This is something that the federal government should be able to do in an orderly fashion, and they just have not been able to do it. You know, what I find amazing is that there's a minimal, if any, screening of the individuals as to their health. Within at the coming in, with leprosy, uh, tuberculosis, oh, heaven forbid, COVID. Uh, we see an uprise in measles, uh, as I said, you know, leprosy, where we, we had it eradicated. Um, a lot of diseases we had eradicated are now coming back. And you see them in areas where they are more sanctuary areas for illegal immigrants. So there is a correlation there. Uh, but we're not talking about people coming in that are from Mexico or Cuba or South or Central America, we're also seeing a higher influx of what they call OTMs, other than Mexicans. Uh, Chinese and Russians, huge, uh, from Turkey, from uh, whole other areas that we had maybe a small number, but no one's afraid. Well, wait a minute, some of us are, because... Mark Capps got, got blessed his heart. I wish I brought this up while he was still here with us. Uh, wrote about it in the Epic Times that they're not being screened properly, so we don't know if we're letting terrorists or espionage agents across our border to cause harm. Yeah, I mean, and there's another program that that uh, we've covered before called the the EB5 visa program. Uh, and if you haven't heard of that, it's basically where you can buy a visa the United States with uh, a 500000 or a million dollar investment. And the issue with, with that is, is that it's supposed to go to economic development projects. So it, fu- it fuels these cronyism projects around the country that are reliant on government subsidies. And what the, the uh, congressional committees have found is that it, it doesn't screen uh, folks for uh, terrorism and other sort of uh, threats to the homeland, but it does let them into the country. You know, um, under the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton negotiated with Saudi Arabia where they could 
use these EB-5 uh, visas, and we didn't screen them, but Saudi Arabia said, okay, fine, we'll determine which ones are eligible to go. Uh, but we're now we're seeing, thank you, Hillary Clinton, for doing that, uh, but now we're seeing, like I said, a large number coming in from China. Uh, those are coming illegally, but how many are coming in on the EB-5s? Uh, because now they're buying up farmland, food processing factories, and many other businesses and buildings and properties here in the United States. How much of these individuals coming over on EB-5 are here to subvert our economy and our security? Uh, I don't know for sure. I don't think anyone really knows. Um, and in, in terms of, uh, I have been following some of that the, the, the farmland stuff, and as far as I know, it looks like that's a very small percentage of American farmland. That doesn't mean it's not a threat and not sh- it shouldn't be looked at. But uh, I guess I'm not I'm not ra- I'm not raising a fire over that just yet. I think it's worth looking at, but I'm not worried at the moment. Oh, I no longer buy Smithfield uh, products because they are now owned by the Communist Chinese. <laughs> So, I know I know yeah. Smithfield is not a company I'm buying from. <laughs> yeah, I, I, on the I, I was just going to say on the, I want to touch on the illegal alien um, crisis that we have. And I mean, you notice that the federal government will fly these folks into cities at night with no problem, no vast notice to the governor, or whatever. Yet when um, Governor like Ron DeSantis or the one from um, Texas decides they're going to, you know, fly these folks into um, cities that are sanctuary cities. Then they want to investigate the governor. It doesn't make sense. Um, but what I really want to get at is the fact that where, where are they putting these people? Because um, everywhere I go, like urban cities like San Francisco, Philly, or whatever, even Jacksonville, Florida, and Orlando, you see homeless people. They're all over the place. I mean, I was in St. Augustine, um, a tourist trap um, in Florida um, the other day. And this is where Europeans come in, people from all over the world. And, and here you got people laying around and whatnot. Um, like, like, I mean, it's, it's like a, a third world country in our, our you know, pristine tourist um, areas. And, and, but we can bring in illegals and put them up, but we got Americans who are homeless just laying all around. I don't understand it. And then you have to wonder about the availability of services for these homeless. And I'm sure it doesn't help that, you know, it's not much the um, cities can do if they don't want help, you know, mental health. And, and, and a lot of these people that are homeless have mental health issues. I, I just want to add that. Yeah, that's a good point. These are complex problems, and they're, they're very difficult to sort of drill down into sound bites. I think it probably – I'm not an expert on those issues that you talked about on, on immigration on, – on, on the immigration in terms of where folks are being flown in and around to or on um, homelessness issues. But I, I think there has been a push to sort of use folks as political pawns, whether they're – whether they're homeless, whether they're illegal immigrants, either by, by the feds and, and by certain states. And I, and I think we have to take a step back and realize that, you know, we're all, we're all humans here and we need to figure out a way forward that, you know, is in the national interest of our country, but that also respects the humanity of all people. 
Well, there's also the problem we have with the immigration, uh, illegal especially, with NGOs, non-government agencies, but they receive a huge federal payout for every body they process. So the more illegal aliens they process and send into the interior of the United States, the more money they get. It is a money-making machine. So how do we turn off the cap? Well, I'm not sure because you'd have to you'd have to replace their function somehow. You'd have to either bring that uh, service in-house to the federal agency, or you'd have to find a, a federal contractor to handle the work. And I'm sure there's ways that you could structure the payment so it's different. Um, but I think uh, that's an issue that uh, is it, difficult to figure out because you need to, you have to have the manpower. You have to have an organization for doing that to replace what you're taking away because you uh, that's not going away. And I'm just not sure exactly if there's a good solution there. Uh, and what that would be. Well, when you look at the immigration issue, do you also look at uh, the illegal as- the other illegal aspects of it, of the uh, weapon smuggling, drug smuggling, human trafficking, uh, all that, and the ramifications they have on us? Uh, that, the, the more international and arms smuggling stuff is a bit outside of, of what I've looked into. Um, what I, what I can tell you is that I've dealt a lot with, in, including through the Freedom of Information Act, looking at the, the bureaucracy and the issues within the United States citizen, Citizenship and Immigration Services and how they're not serving our country very well and they're not serving immigrants very well. And I think that's something that an, uh, a federal agency has to be able to do well. That's its core mission. And no matter which administration it's been under, it's sort of been falling short of those goals and our country is worse off for it. That that it is that it is. Um, some of the other things that you do handle is uh, corporate uh, government welfare, and we've seen a lot of that with the outbreak of COVID. Um, how do we get corporate America out of the government dole? And what are you looking at specifically in this area? Sure. Well, number one, the, the government has to stop offering it because corporate America is never going uh, <laughs> to turn turn down free Duh. money. Uh, so the, a couple of different places. So uh, we have a state chapter in, in Illinois that's working to fight uh, corporate subsidies for the Chicago Bears organization for their new uh, football stadium they're trying to put outside of Chicago and Arlington Heights. Uh, we're looking into, uh, if you recall, last year the Congress passed what's called the CHIPS Act, which is about subsidizing semiconductor manufacturing here in America. And it, they recently put out the most recent funding opportunity, and it looks like in exchange for this money, they're putting in a bunch of uh, requirements that are uh, basically weren't in the law and that are going to hamper manufacturing here. They, you know, there's lots of uh, uh, labor added labor costs. There's lots of uh, restrictions on what they can do, and there's sort of some ESG uh, ESG stuff in there and, and equity requirements that are. Uh, it might be even poison pills for some of these companies. They might have signed up for something that they don't want. So the, uh, a couple of different things within the states and, and the federal government that we're, we're, looking, we're looking at, and there's no real slowdown in terms of state and federal handouts to the companies, and it's, and it's a shame. That it is. That it is. Uh, corporate welfare, and we saw the corporate welfare, we saw with the coming of the COVID vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, and all the others, uh, they made a lot of money uh, off of it, and yet uh, if something happens bad with those vaccines, we're not allowed to sue 
the vaccine companies, but we can sue the federal government for allowing the vaccines. That that that's that's really smart. Like the federal government's going to let you sue them <laughs> and win. I don't think so. But crony capitalism, uh, when it comes to corporate welfare, is uh, astounding, especially under this administration. And hopefully we can remedy that in the upcoming election. I got to say, though, um, I dealt with the um, Americans for Prosperity chapter here in South Carolina. And I understand you're also in South Carolina, too. Uh, No, I'm based in uh, the state of Georgia. Uh, So you're across the border. (laughs) Okay. Yes, but (laughs) I've worked with the state chapter on a number of things, including uh, certificate of need reform. We, We published a report on certificate of need in South Carolina back in uh, late 2021, which uh, if listeners are interested, they can go to our website, americansforprosperity.org slash permission dash to dash care. And all of the state reports are on there, including the one on South Carolina. Ah, well, um, I run a tea party since 2009 here. We're still running, knock on wood. Uh, and we were fighting an increase in the gas tax. And you guys provided a bus and lunch uh, to go up to Columbia uh, to do our protest. And I found it very enlightening because I had never gone into the state capitol to do a protest, you know, to go stand there in the hall and say, all right, I'm sending for my state representative. They'll come out one door and the state senator will come out the other door and come and talk to you. So you're not actually protesting, but you're there to discuss the issue on the floor with your representative and senator, which they do that. And I I found it exhilarating that you helped us to facilitate that moment. And I have to tell you, my state senator, when I approached him about the the gas tax, he's like, well, we're working on it, but I can't do miracles. What do you expect, miracles? And I looked at him and I said, yes, sir, that's what we elected you for. (laughs) He just looked at me like, what? And I said, yes, we elected you to perform miracles. And this is how we see things, and this is how you're going to help us to achieve that goal. So he has come back to the uh, our, our, our Tea Party meetings. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but not as blusterous as before. <laughs> <laughs> but these are some of the things that you guys do over at American for Prosperity. It's not just a few things that we've talked about. And I encourage everyone to go to the website for American for Prosperity to learn more about it and see how they or you can help each other. Yeah, that's right. And our, our state chapter in South Carolina is very good. We have state chapters in 35 states. Just go to americansforprosperity.org. There's a drop-down menu at the top. You can select your state, and you can find out how to get involved. Well, God bless you, Kevin, and we welcome you back anytime in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's our pleasure. All right, Kevin Smith, uh, Schmidt, get the right name, Kevin Schmidt, uh, with Americans for Prosperity. We've got our next victim up in the uh, bullpen here. want to welcome to the show Dr. Robert Dean. He's an ear, nose, and throat specialist. I'm not going to try to pronounce the specialty because I'm going to tie my tongue up in knots. <laughs> and I don't want you to look yeah. down my throat going, where'd your tongue go? Good afternoon, Dr. Right. Dean. How are you? Good, and you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. Uh, one of the things, as you know, with our last guest, we were talking about the certificate of need, and you have been talking about having government deregulate itself from health care. Hallelujah, let's get something moving on this. This is something that we've been talking about during most of the show. And um, yeah. tell us from your viewpoint, 
how government is impeding your ability to have a one-on-one relationship with your patients and what they're doing to prevent you from giving them the full care and service they actually need. Yeah, it's um, rather complex and uh, multi-focal, but to be honest with you, you know, a large portion of it does stem from government regulation. And I think anyone that's in in any industry that has some government oversight understands what uh, regulation does to um, a company. It increases cost and uh, complexity and uh, decreases efficiencies. And when you have that situation, then you're going to have a system that gets bogged down in itself. And you can go through the litany of different things that the government does and doesn't do them efficiently. So, you know, in healthcare, um, one of the things you guys were just talking about was the certificate of need. And and that's on a state-by-state basis. But, of course, the federal government can come in um, from a national perspective and uh, put a halt to something like that, which would allow the states to operate in a way that um, improves competition in the marketplace. That's truly what you need. And without that, uh, you're going to have the the you know biggest institutions will have control or monopolies in their um, respective marketplaces, and that just drives up the healthcare cost. So um, CONs are are really important uh, to try to abolish. But you know another one that's really huge is physician-owned hospitals, <clears throat> and I say this because we are at a you know a crossroads in healthcare where we have now more physicians employed than we have in private practice. And private practice is where healthcare efficiencies happen. Uh, That's where you can actually drive down costs. When physicians become employed, costs go up precipitously. In fact, there were two studies that were done back in around 2016, one at UC Berkeley Public School of Health, and the other done by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And both of those studies concluded, um, you know, in their studies that Employed physicians drive costs up and decrease outcomes, and that's just the opposite of what institutions and the government says they want to do. The, the paradox right now in healthcare is they want to decrease costs and improve outcomes, and you can't do it if you have physician-employed models. We, you know, that would be a, a topic of discussion that could go on for about an hour or even longer mm. of why that is. But but that is the, 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 the and I think we all know. But um. <clears throat> that is the findings in that study. So now what's happened is, is physicians have become employed by some large hospital uh, institutions and others um, by private equity and venture capital, which found a large resource of cheap capital in the past you know, five years. And they've exercised that capital to buy up physician practices, which caused massive consolidation, increased leveraging with contracting, and drove up healthcare costs. Um, <clears throat> now that doesn't trickle down to the physician, some people um, mistakenly believe, well, that's physicians making more money. Nope, that's the institutions that now own those physicians making money. And so those are things that drive up that cost. So going back to the government, under the ACA, there um, was a moratorium that was placed on physician-owned hospitals. So there are some physician-owned hospitals in the country, but they were grandfathered in because they uh, opened up prior to 2012. So now you uh, you can't have any ownership. But let me sidestep for just a moment and talk about something called ambulatory surgery centers, ASCs are what they're known as. And ASCs really started to get off the ground in early 2000s. 
And they became so incredibly efficient at providing all the ambulatory uh, surgeries <clears throat> that it became very clear to payers that want to save money, particularly like Medicaid, which are state-funded programs, that they would prefer patients have their surgeries in ambulatory surgery centers. They can have them because they're healthy and they're a case that can be done safely outpatient. In a surgery center, you can do a case for about a fifth of the cost, one-fifth of the cost that you can do it in a hospital. Same case, same surgeon, same anesthesiologist, same circulators that are assisting the surgeon, nurses that are supporting uh, recovery rooms and pre-op holding areas. Same thing, but because the facility is now a smaller platform and costs drop precipitously to manage that, you can save a ton in healthcare costs. And that's where the CONs play, you know, that we were talking about earlier and that you were talking about with Americans for Prosperity. The CONs prevent those ASCs from coming into those marketplaces where efficiencies can improve. <clears throat> so, but my point, my bigger point with the physician-owned hospital side of things was in the ambulatory surgery centers, physicians have been partners um, and owners in those surgery centers, and they've become very efficient at what they do, great outcomes, and they did exactly what the paradox in healthcare was was. Um, you know, being described that wasn't being met, which was decreasing cost and improving outcomes. <clears throat> and you decrease cost because your facilities are just easier uh, and more manageable to run at a lower lower overhead. So in the hospital setting, I think you could have the same thing if you, again, put physicians back in the driver's seat. Why? Because <clears throat> physicians are driven by um, good outcomes. They love, you know, I will tell you, I mean, there's always a bad apple. So I I always hate trying to make a blanket statement, but I believe that, you know, 99.9% .9 of people go into healthcare because they really want to help others. And, you know, in a system where physicians now are just like in the ambulatory surgery centers, partners in that hospital, they're going to do the best that they possibly can to improve outcomes and decrease costs, which, um, you know, again, is where we're trying to strive for. Right now when they become employed, it's just like any other institution the, the drive and the desires start to change for whatever reason. But I'm just talking from a human standpoint. Um, those, those drives and desires change. And if you want to see two institutions in one community really try to outperform one another to demonstrate that they could decrease costs and improve outcomes, let physicians be owners in them and, and let them prove it. Let the free market work. But they won't let that happen. So, so we're stuck. Well, now with with the ambulatory surgical centers, which I'm very familiar with, mm -hmm. what about what mm -hmm. I call the dock in the box? Would that, mm -hmm. Does that drive down costs also? Dock in the box. So you're talking about like a physician that has their own um, ambulatory surgery center in their office, or not 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 necessarily ambulatory, but someone can come in there, uh -huh. uh, say they're having an allergic reaction. They can do they. Okay. We triage similar to an ER, but without all the bells and whistles and all the other things. They could hand, get to a case where they say, all right, fine, we can't do this. We're going to get you to the ER. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's not like you're calling your regular practitioner and can't get an appointment for the next two weeks. You need help right, now, right. here and now. You walk through the door. We call it a dock in the box. <laughs> That's what I call it. Boy, you don't, no insult. Yeah, no, no, no. No, 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 no. So you don't know how hot you are right now over the target. Um, so a lot of those facilities, they call urgent cares, and urgent cares can be staffed by physicians right. and or uh, mm -hmm. mid-level providers or both. Um, and, and urgent cares do drive down costs precipitously. Now, 
what we've tried to do in our marketplace is take that one step further. And, you know, when you go to the emergency department, your assumption is that they have every specialist on staff to handle any particular need that comes in, whether that's GI, pulmonary, um, otolaryngology, ENT, neuro, neurosurgery, um, cardiology, whatever it may be. In fact, that's not the case. If it's an institution where, you know, like an academic institution or an institution where they own all the physicians, say, you know, Kaiser Permanente or Cleveland Clinic or MD Anderson or something like that, they're going to have a, you know, full staff of, of specialists because they employ all of those physicians. And, again, we can go through the employment model versus the private, private practice independent model where costs can be contained. But all the rest of the hospitals in the country – are left with a huge void because they don't have all the specialties. In my state, so I'm in the state of Arizona, um, I'm in Tucson, and it is the second largest city in the state of Arizona, Phoenix being the largest, and Phoenix is growing probably faster than most cities in in the country. There are about five, five and a half million people. They have hardly any ENTs that cover call in the hospitals in the Phoenix Valley area. So oftentimes we get patients transferred down here to Tucson to one of our community hospitals, not an academic institution, but the community hospital, to manage those ENT lives. And last week we had somebody flown from Las Vegas, Nevada, down to Tucson over Phoenix, not to Reno, (laughs) and not to L.A. or to San Francisco, but down to Tucson to be able to try to get them the ENT services that they needed um, in our community. So. You know, there's a huge void in this marketplace. So going back to what you were talking about, the dock in the box or the urgent care, a great model to support, for our government to support, for institutions to support, would be urgent cares that have access to specialists, people that can actually provide care in an ambulatory setting. As an ENT, I cover call at the hospital, and we take care of a large breadth of patients in our marketplace. Many of them come in with advanced disease, and significant problems, and they some belong in the hospital, but a large percentage, a large percent, 80% of those patients can be handled in an ambulatory marketplace. But the problem is the belief of the patient is that the only way they can get access to those specialists is in the emergency department. So the hospital has this huge lever over society in, in the belief that the only way that you can get this healthcare and get it consistently is through our doors. But that costs the system whether that's the commercial marketplace, Blue Crosses, United Cygnus, Aetnas, and that means the employer groups that purchase that health care, or the government, Medicare or Medicaid, a large amount of money to manage patients that could simply be managed in an ambulatory marketplace if they had the right specialist participating in an ambulatory marketplace. And those are the things that we should be fostering if we truly want to try to drive down costs and improve outcomes. That's the innovation that we need. There's, there's just zero money you can make in that marketplace, and that's the frustrating thing. So it forces you to continue using the same system over and over again and expecting a different outcome. And that was Einstein's definition of insanity. <laughs> that it is. So. That it is. But, you know, how does that compare then to what the government has with VA hospitals? And the reason why I ask that is because my co-host happens to be a veteran, and he has to use mm. the VA facilities. Um, yeah. Is there a model between the two that can be combined, or do they both need total uh, reformation? Yeah, so the VA system is very interesting. I've worked in many VAs. I take care of a lot of veterans here in our community. I love taking care of them. And 
some of the veterans love the VA and they have good experiences and um, typically those are people that are either one of two things, very well connected into the VA and they've got regular routine follow-ups and appointments and they're managing chronic, uh, you know, care disease. Um, or there are people that had an acute problem that was uh, immediately addressed, but everybody that falls in between, you know, with something that needs maybe a few follow-up visits or um, is not acute in nature and like a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, but, you know, chronic sinus disease, I'm just picking something simple. They may find that navigating that system and getting the care they need is much more difficult. And, you know, now those folks can actually get into the private marketplace and expedite their care by using physicians in the private marketplace. And that's where I see a lot of the veterans. Um, it's just because they don't have the capacity within the VA. But the VA would be, um, you know, probably more of your example of what a single-payer system or a socialized system would look like. And if you look at the efficiencies of the VA, and, you know, I, I'm sure someone's going to try to give an example of something that's really, really efficient, but I can tell you I've been in several VAs across the country, and they all run almost identical. The efficiencies are very poor. Um, you know, you can't schedule cases in the OR past 2 p.m. You know, everybody wants out of the hospital by 3 p.m., um, turnover times, if you're working in the operating room, are very slow. And that's a chronic problem, quite frankly, with, you know, most hospital-based systems. That's where ambulatory surgery centers have a huge advantage is turnovers are very rapid. You know, we focus on patient care and um, getting things done and becoming very, very efficient. But those are the types of changes that you need in a marketplace. I mean, in any industry, if, you've ever, if there's ever an industry that's successful, it's based upon improving efficiencies. I don't think there could be one CEO leader anywhere in the country of a big business that didn't streamline and improve efficiencies in their system, and that is not happening in healthcare. And the VA is really not an example of, of uh, true efficiencies in the marketplace. Well, you know, um, I've seen the healthcare grow around here uh, when I moved here 23 years ago and mm -hmm. how some areas have exploded and other areas have shrunk. And the independent doctor is the largest area I see a shrinkage uh, where doctors are now uh, incorporating their practices with others. Um, what, why would they do that? What's their benefit if they're more cost-effective acting independently? Is it because of re over-regulation? Is it because of insurance mandates? Why would you turn around and say, instead of being independent and not responsible to anyone else, go into a partnership or into a hospital? Boy, again, you are <laughs> right over the target. Your questions are awesome because you're, you're, you're going to drag out of me information that's going to keep us on the line for the next couple hours. But I will tell you, um, that is one of the major problems. So when I first started kind of looking into a lot of the topics we're talking about. This is pre-pandemic stuff. This was actually nine years ago. And slowly it was creeping up that physicians were becoming more and more employed, but the number was below 50%. And then just pre-pandemic, I remember reading an article that the scales hit and it was about 51%. And I just read an article this past week and you always have to question some of the accuracy from these articles, but um, it quoted that now, so we're three years into the pandemic, the uh, employed rate is about 71%. And so the scales wow. have totally tipped. And a large uh, portion of that is probably because of that VC, that venture capital and private equity money that I was telling you about earlier that went around and started requiring physician practices. And so <clears throat> um, 
the psychology of the sellout from that perspective, the VC private equity side, was just the temptation by probably physicians that are close to retirement. Um, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bridge, but saying, hey, you know, it makes sense for me to sell my practice and become employed for the next three years or five years, whatever the contract reads, and <clears throat> um, just get out. Um, there are many other physicians that say, no way, I would never take that deal. I'll just retire. I'll sell my practice, um, leave medicine altogether, um, or take another, you know, uh, another route. Um, and then I think what's happening now in the academic institutions as physicians are going through training, whether it's medical school or residency training, is that it's becoming more and more accessible to have discussions about what job you're going to take that's going to be an employed job. You know, in a lot of of millennials now like that kind of aspect of life, not the, the difficulties of trying to run a private practice, um, not having to take the risk, but instead always getting the paycheck. But, you know, like the discussions I have with my patients uh, quite frequently, healthcare wasn't really about a big business 40 years ago. It was about taking care of people. And that's what made it mm -hmm. such a special institution is because the patient-physician relationships that you could develop, the consistency of care that you knew that you were going to get with seeing your family physician. And now it's turned into a $4.2 trillion a year business, and everybody wants a piece of it. It's the biggest industry in the United States of America by far and away, you know, far outpacing even the defense industry. You know, all of our military budget doesn't even come close to what we spend in healthcare. And so it is a huge business that has a big target on its back. And the physicians have been sidelined, but they are the true economic key of the whole engine. That engine doesn't run without a prescription being written, without a consent being signed, without, you know, a order to admit the patient to the hospital being signed by a physician. The legal authorization and the liability lies on the physician, and they've been put to the back of the bus, and it's become a huge business. So kind of getting back to, you know, why people have left private practice, they are burnt out. It's difficult um, negotiating with the insurance companies. Um, they won't acquiesce whatsoever um, as though their biggest cost center is the physician cost, which it's not. You know, only 7% of costs in healthcare um, go to physicians. 93% is everything else about healthcare. It's the TPAs and the insurance companies themselves. It is the hospitals, it's the device companies, it's the pharmaceutical industry, it's pharmacy benefit managers, it's group purchasing organizations. We can go down the laundry list of individuals that have their hand in the kitty that are responsible for the high cost of health care. Um, everybody knows about prescription medications and what a mess that is. I mean, talk about lack of transparency. Oh. And that was the next I mean, bomb. it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, right. That was going to be the, yeah. the next bomb. I uh -huh. mean, uh, because now with the with the burgeoning of uh, it was originally the TV commercials but now with social media and our smart devices people are becoming more and more aware of the pharmaceutical industry out there and that is a blooming gold mine look what how much money they made just on the covid vaccine uh, alone it's incredible. compared to everything you see I'm telling you I'm dropping those death bombs on you, you know, right. boom yeah um, <laughs> but no, no, the question no, is it's, now it's true. Uh, now, yeah, people are being hit with one commercial after another, uh, whether it's Crohn's disease or it's 
erectile dysfunction or it's something with the thyroid in your eyes. Whatever. Everyone all of a sudden is looking at they go, oh, well, you know, I'm going to take my pulse and I think my heart's racing a little too. Maybe I got that. And how much yep. of hypochondria is now being pushed into the medical industry and people are receiving treatments for something they really don't need, medications for something they really, truly don't need. Maybe it's altering their diet or lose a few pounds. Maybe you won't have the diabetes, but you lost about 40 or 50 pounds. Uh, Common sense things that could make a person healthier and live longer. Instead, it's being a push by the industry and the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Yeah, so um, a couple things on that. So I'll tell you, you know, right now what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry is what's become huge are what are called biologics. And these are large molecules, not small molecules. Usually peptides have to be injected. Um, They're not stable, so they don't have long shelf lives. Um, But I will say they have incredible performance. They can do things that we could never do in medicine before, but they're extremely uh, expensive. And these are drugs like Dupixent, Nucala, Fethinra, and those are the ones you're seeing a lot of these marketing ads on. But we're talking about medications that are $5,000 a month. And so, you know, these are incredibly expensive medications. Now, maybe with time, these kind of medications will, will go down in price. But healthcare is becoming more sophisticated and tailored so that, you know, to your point, um, they're going to be trying to sell these medications. And the question becomes, the ethical and moral question becomes, is this really necessary? Does the patient actually need this? Because of the cost to the system is incredibly huge. And you can make some arguments for, for instance, like eosinophilic esophagitis. That's where you get an inflammation of your esophagus, your swallow tube. And there's really never been a really good treatment for that until the advent of this drug called Dupixin. Okay, well, that's a select marketplace where there are some people that are going to find some huge benefit. You know, the question becomes on pricing. Is it a drug? I mean, understandably, a pharmaceutical company to bring something to the marketplace who also is under a lot of regulatory, you know, requirements has to spend a lot of money to bring those drugs to the marketplace, to do the research, to hire the scientists, you know, to um, get through the FDA and get it to to the market. And, you know, clearly in order for them to stay in business, they're going to have to be um, compensated for those capital outlays. But there becomes a point at where it probably goes beyond just that compensation and some profit, profitability. It, it goes on to, like, you're, like you said with the vaccines, you know, Pfizer reportedly made $100 billion on just the COVID vaccine. I mean, $100 billion. And in that same report, what I read was that the whole music industry in the same year made $12 billion. So for one drug from Pfizer, it made nearly 10 times as much as the entire music industry makes in a single year. So <clears throat> the question becomes, does it cost you $100 billion to bring this to the marketplace? I mean, you're probably talking about a billion dollars. Your return was 100 to 1. That's incredible. That's a, that's a really heck of a return, and the taxpayer paid for it. And, you know, we can go down the whole rabbit hole of the discussions about um, about the vaccine, but... But to your point, I think, uh, you know, we're going to have more headwinds in the future because pharmaceutical industry is going to be driven more towards these biologics, and they're going to become more expensive to, to manage patient lives if we're going to continue to use this. Now, the other thing I will say is you were right above the target as well when you, when you talk about people are going to say, maybe I need this drug, and they're going to really want to have that drug because people sometimes overthink their health care problem. And what 
companies like Apple and Fitbit and other companies, right now we live in a world where data is king. Everybody wants data. And they'll collect data and they'll do it for free because they know they can sell the data on the back end. And this is happening big time in the healthcare industry. And so everybody wants to wear their Fitbit. They want to see the number of steps they got in during the day. They want to check their heart rate. They mm-hmm. want to check their pulse ox. They want to make sure that their EKG this, you know, comes across supposedly from their, their newest watch device. Um, shows that they're not in AFib, and if it does show they're in AFib, boy, they got to get into the cardiologist. These things are going to drive people insane because they're going to drive them to the doctor. And <clears throat> you can imagine how that's going to look in the future. Companies like Amazon will acquire that data and then use that data to navigate patient lives, which they'll want a piece of that pie as well, which will further drive up costs. And so you know, we're going to have a completely wired community of people wanting to check their devices all the time, and it's going to lead to, you know, more frequent care and probably some unnecessary care, probably a lot of unnecessary care. So yeah. um, so we do have some problems moving forward. Well, i got to tell you, my mom, well, I, I want to mention this, my mom does have a Fitbit. She's going to be 91 this uh-huh. year. And yeah. my sister got it for her because my mom does suffer from AFib. Um, however, uh-huh. I carry a Cardiomobile because I also suffer from AFib. So if I feel symptoms, yep. I can take out the little Cardiomobile the size of a credit card, and I can do a six-lead EKG. So when she was going into AFib, I was notified uh, on my cell phone. So I went over and I said, yep. "Right, fine, let's let's check her." So yeah, I did get her into the cardiology. She's now wearing a monitor because she was still in AFib. But <laughs> just yeah. two days before that. My fiance wasn't feeling well. I pulled out my little Cardio Mobile, not a Fitbit or anything. I, I, you'll never see me wearing one, honestly. Uh, I pulled out my little Cardio, and here was in Tackle Cardia. And I did it over yeah. a couple of tests, you know, just to make sure I'm getting, he's still in. So after about 20 yeah. minutes, it's all right, fine. 20 minutes, Tackle Cardia, you're going. Pack him in the car and get him yeah. over. You know, here I think logically, but with these devices, people aren't always going to think as logically as I do. Uh, they're going to be right. more emotional because I'm saying I'm not feeling. Or that's right. Where may have been a minor little sinus headache. It's now this major full blown migraine, and yes. and people are emotional when it comes to their own bodies and health. And yes, they're all playing directly into their hands. That's absolutely true. No, I mean you're you're a very educated consumer, but I will tell you that 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 isn't everybody that's going to be using uh, these devices and. And that's going to be the, the frustrating thing to try to tease out. And I, and I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of ethical discussions that need to be had, moral discussions that need to be had, because each one of these pieces of technology, and including the pharmaceutical drugs that we described, there is some benefit to some parts of society. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that we should be, again, going back to what healthcare was 40 years ago, it was, a, it was about a humanitarian effort. It was about taking care of people. And, again, we're turning it into a big business. And, and we've got to find that, that, that dividing line where we say, hey, look, there's a profit you can make, but there's, there's a point at which you no longer have a humanitarian mission to what you do, and it's 100% business. And that's the, the really um, opaque uh, moral and ethical uh, boundary line that we really have not gone on to, to define. And, um, you know, I think that really needs further clarification and, and definition. But again, if you have a marketplace of free ideas and true capitalism, those things tend to sort themselves out, whatever the industry may be. 
And when you have a marketplace that is a crony capitalistic market where rules are put in place that, enham- that hamper um, the, free, the true free market, well, then you'll never get that, dis- that uh, discovery. It'll never happen. And that's why it's so important to remove governmental regulation to the point where it allows the free market to truly innovate. And the free market means everybody, not just, not just the big guys on the block. No, not at all. Curtis, I'm sorry. We ran out of time for your last question. But, Dr. Dean, you've got to come back because we have so much more to talk about. We just only scratched the surface, and you know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know that. (laughs) I appreciate your time and having me on. Do you have a website or a Facebook page that if people want to ask you further questions, they can reach you? Um, You know, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, I have a LinkedIn account, and... uh, uh, certainly can send me an email and reach out to me there. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to having you back on the show, sir. God bless you for the hard Thank work you so you much. Take Thank you so right. much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're too. welcome. Bye-bye. Dr. Robert Dean, and man, what a what an amazing interview. Let's bring our now final victim in from the Heritage Foundation. He's new to the show, so he has no idea what he's in for. Let's welcome Paul Dans. Uh, he is uh, with the Heritage Foundation. He's the director of the uh, Project 2025 Presidential Transition. Good afternoon, Paul, and oh boy. Do we have a lot to talk about, son? <laughs> hey, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you, Annie, and, and your listeners. Um, very excited. We're we're uh, this is you know the biggest game in town to get ready, even though it's two years off. And um, as my colleague says, we have two years and one chance to get this right. But well, conservatives yes. are are getting a plan together, and we'll and we'll be ready to go. Well, when Tom was telling me about this project, and uh, I don't know if he told you that every week he sends me one of you guys over here to uh, be a guest on the show, the final half hour of the show, he says, well, you may want to look into, and he mentioned it, and I said, you know, I had started to pull stuff down, and the first words out of my mouth was is that when I watched President Trump go into office, the first words out of my mouth was, clean house, don't keep anyone from the old administration in there. Do the very same thing Bill Clinton did, where he actually removed some of the keys off of the, some of the, the typewriters that had uh, sure. George Bush on it. Uh, but I said, you've got to clean house. You've got to clean everyone out. Start with a completely new slate of people who know what the heck they're doing. Instead, he kept people in place so that they can transition. And that was not the right thing to do. And we saw the outcome of that. Absolutely. No, it's, you know, the point is, uh, and President Trump, to be fair, you know, conservative Inc., as they say, was not expecting him to win. And they hadn't really gotten together to make it easy for him to do a transition. And, you know, they say that he also was really focused on winning. He's he's almost, if anything, a little superstitious and didn't want to put a lot of, of, of the thought that needs to go into getting getting the team in place when and if you do win. But the reality is that the things are so complicated and the importance of moving out quickly, you you can't downplay that. A president's power is at its apex in that first 100 days. So not only do you have to have the right people who know what they're doing ready to roll, but you have to have the ideas essentially pre-baked. The uh, executive orders have to be drafted. They have to be vetted. 
the regulations have to also be, you know, in, in a pretty much a, a form that they can be propounded right away. Um, the list of things that have to be torn down and, and, and taken out. And um, this is what we're really trying to do now. We're starting here as a, as a collective group of conservatives. We're 50, over 50 of the largest organizations coming together, led by Heritage. But, you know, it's really in a, a movement-wide um, project, Project 25 is. And um, the idea is we're joining forces irrespective of who the next conservative president will be. This isn't directed towards any one candidate, but when that candidate becomes a nominee, we'll be ready to work directly with them and their team to make sure that they can hit the ground running at 12 noon on the 20th of January, 2025. Well, in the commentary that Spencer had wrote over under Project 25 that people can find at heritage.org, um, there was a, a, a line that I underlined and said conservatives have been outgunned and outmatched when it comes to the art of government. Boy, that is a mouthful, but I'm going to let you explain to our listeners what you, what you guys mean about that. Uh, the last time I said you guys, someone called me a racist, so <laughs> please forgive oh. me. It's the New Yorker in me. No, yeah, I, yeah. I, was, I was in New York for, <laughs> Forget about I, I'm actually, um, believe it or not, we live in South Carolina. We escaped um, communism and, and moved to South Carolina. So my family is so actually resident there. Ago. So wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait. I'm, I'm low country. Where are you? Okay. I'm low yeah, country. We, we, um, we I, I joke, my, um, my wife's originally from Charlotte, and um, we'd met up in New York City. We were, uh, I was an attorney, and she, um, she's a ballerina. But... Um, we, you know, we've been up there and kind of bouncing off the walls. We have four kids, but um, it was time to kind of check out of the city. And um, and we were like, you know, we have to go to a free state. So I, I got we got out before COVID, but um, I sometimes joke that I tell folks my in-laws, and that's why, you know, the major push to come down to Carolina was, was family. Um, they also escaped communism. And, and settled in South Carolina, and people asked, well, where did they come from? Oh, Charlotte, North Carolina. No, no. Just, but, <laughs> just want to know, which, which, which area? Are you Midlands? Are you uh, we're in Fort Grand Mill, Grand? and we just, we, we just actually have moved down to, um, to Charleston. So um, we're saving ah, the whole state. It's a you. great place. Now, yeah. no, 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 no. now you stepped into it. You stepped into it. If you were there, okay. Charleston, you are coming to my Tea Party meeting. We have it on the third <laughs> month of every month. Boom, you're in driving distance. Yeah, oh, no, I'd love to. You're in trouble now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to get to your question um, about what it means to be outgunned, um, you know, conservatives and, and myself, I, you know, I wasn't in government. I'm, a, I'm a, an attorney. Um, don't hold that against me. But I, I was in private practice up in New York for 20 years. And um, government's unlike anything else. It's not private business. It's not even... Uh, kind of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, nonprofit work. It's it's a thing unto itself. So, as conservatives, we're you know we're focused on God, family, and country, and not so much government, right? Um, we actually believe in smaller government and, and representative led by you know people. But um, <clears throat> the reality is, if you think you can step outside of government and ignore it, those slots will all get filled by liberals and progressives that are going to weaponize and turn this behemoth um, government against us. So 
we have to change the way we think about that. And liberals are, are constantly, um, you know, really scrutinizing what they do in government and preparing and planning and, and figuring out all kinds of loopholes to exploit. And as Republicans or conservatives, we really have to start um, similarly uh, being creative and, and looking at what some of the left does and, and it actually improving on it. So this is, this is a project to basically reach out to your listeners and everybody else across the country. We want new people to come to Washington. You don't have to have had experience in government, but we want to identify, there are certain things you have to have. And, um, you know, you, you have to have a willingness to work hard. You have to have a core set of beliefs that are, are conservative. You have to have, um, you know, a resiliency kind of a, 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 a spine to do this work. And you also have to kind of be a happy warrior because it's, it's going to be, uh, a sacrifice, you know, having a supportive family. But this is a project where we're basically doing outreach to tell folks, if you've ever come and thought about serving or you know somebody who could, this is the funnel we want to get you in. We're going we're gonna to identify you. We're going to teach you what we, what we kind of believe. We're going to train you up to understand how you're going to function in the government, and we're going to give you the plan. So on day one, you're ready to move out. Um, and actually go to work for the president. Well, now, you, this Project 25, uh, 2025 is broken down to three main components. Uh, you have, let me see if I get this correct. One is policy, right? Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, one is uh, breaking down all the individual agencies and having them ready to be filled. And the third part is actually training people. So once they go into office on day one, they know what their job is, they know what the policies that are to be put in place are, and they can take action on day one. Am I getting this correct? Yes. I mean, actually, some there's we our programs almost based on four pillars is how we generally describe it. So there's one more important one, but. Um, what, what we're setting to do, and this is this is not a heritage thing. This is an entire movement thing. Uh, our president Kevin Roberts, when he came aboard, you know, he's recognizing that 2024 is really kind of game over for our country in the sense that we don't get it right. There isn't a lot of time left on the clock, and um, so what's in front of us is bigger than than any one organization can lift. We have to join. Um, arms with with fellow conservative organizations and kind of put down some of the 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 um, differences between us and basically unite and do the work together. Um, so that's that's what this is. This is 50 groups um, really kind of coming together to parcel out the work and and get it ready. The um, the program's in four parts. So. We, we're doing a policy book, which is called um, Mandate for Leadership, The Conservative Promise 2024. That's going to come out next month um, on April 21st. That, that kind of harkens back to the book that Heritage Foundation had initially given to President-elect Reagan. Um, some people might know of this. It was a policy book that went chapter by chapter, agency by agency, and said how a conservative a Reagan revolution might take place at, say, the Department of the Interior. And it literally put the president and the conservative movement on the same page and, and, and helped him, you know, to really advance. So 
we, we're taking that model. We've gone back to the future, so to speak. Now, 40 years later, we, we rounded up um, through our through our board, our 50-member organizations, nominations for people to contribute to these chapters, and over almost 400 folks have, have gotten together and authored this work. So that's the first part. It's going to basically tell you that some of the major consensus in how, like, the Department of State or the Department of um, housing and urban development might might be rethought. Um, and it's not going to be the definitive work, but it will show you, you know, where conservatives disagree, we'll set that out. And that that's for the president's team to decide. The second thing is we're making a massive database of prospective people who can serve in government. So this is, um, it's not LinkedIn, but we're going to let each applicant basically curate their own page. They're going to be able to upload their resume and their social media, explain their interests, um, give some background on themselves, and then these various organizations are going to be able to put in their recommendations for people. We'll, we'll put those names together and be able to match them up with prospective organization charts for the agencies and, and then furnish that to the, you know, the president-elect and, and advocate for these people. So that's, um, you know, this is for people who don't have connections into Washington. I've never... You know, I didn't when I when I I was in the Trump administration for two years, but I had you know long time worked and, and been a fan of the president and worked on on various campaigns for Republicans all the way back to early 90s. But it still, it took me two years to try to get my foot in the door. And this the, the idea with this program is that you know somebody sitting there in Columbia, South Carolina, or you know in Los Angeles, or all points in between is going to have a shot. Um, so that, that, that database is going to go live at the end of this month, and that's at project2025.org. So um, that will be a major tool for staffing. Third, we're going to do training. We're going to online training academy, which teaches people new to government how the government functions and how you would function in the government. So those courses are being taught by our experts from our various 50-member organizations, and we'll have over 40 classes online. Right now we have 10. Listeners who are interested can go to project2025.org and sign up to start taking these classes. They're free. People who are more experienced in government, we're going to be bringing them in and kind of doing smaller conferences and telling them, hey, this is what you have to do when you get on the job. This is what we expect of our senior leaders. This isn't a time for you to embellish your resume or get to the next perch or, like, you know, kind of by the confidence of the career workforce, you, you need to be advancing the movement and you need to be like mentoring the people below you and developing the next person to take your job. So it's very much like training people in a new way of thinking about their service. And the four finally, we're doing really the playbooks, the, the work that is going to get done in the first 100 days. So, you know, when the president basically says, so help me God, these groups are going to walk right into the building and get to work. Wow. But oh. basically, isn't that what Biden did when he, the very first day after you were sworn in, started signing executive orders? You know, I, I can't, it's tough for me to say many positive things about Biden, but I will <laughs> remark that they were organized and we have to not only emulate what they did, but improve on it. So there is something we can learn from from that transition, 
and believe me, we're studying it and we're going to take it to another level. But yeah, they they were they didn't waste time, and no, and nor they can didn't. We. Go Paul, ahead, Curtis. This this is co-host. Hey. hey, I love what I love this, this approach um, to the um, feature of our our party and our candidates, but. Will anything work if they continue to cheat if we don't get that under control? Yeah, no, uh, I get this one, um, this question all the time, really. Um, and, no, it's, it's you, you know, we're kind of putting the horse, the cart before the horse in a sense. You've got to win in 2024. And, um, you know, as someone, as an attorney who's been on the ground and, you know, is not, you know, during the election in 2020, I've been there in 2022. I've been on these presidential elections since 2004, and I, I can't, you know, I've actually helped litigate stolen elections dating back to the to the 90s. So you're you're completely right. The election integrity and and the and the watching of what's going on is fundamental. That though is kind of separate from my project, our project here. You know, we um, elections at heart are local and state run, not federal. And um, though there is some avenue that the federal government should, should superintend in them. It, it's not, we don't as a, as a broad pop, proposition want federalization of, of elections. Um, you know, we're not clever enough as conservatives, but the Democrats have obviously mapped that that playbook out and i think we avoided the hr1 the last go round but um i would exhort everyone who wants to serve in government that you have to do your part to get these candidates elected and when we look for candidates to serve i think it's fundamental that we look at people in the movement who have paid the sweat equity and done the work so i really you know how thankless and it's a tough job to do that lawyering involved with it. It's a tough job to do the volunteering and everything in between the going to the, to the meetings, the school boards, any, anything you're active in, but that shows um, your caliber and your character. And that is really what, what we want when you come into the arena in Washington, this is, that's the, that's the triple a ball that you need to put in the work to know. And, and we, that, you know, my my aspiration is that we are going to heavily weight that kind of activity. So, to to people who are considering it, look, the work has to get done in 2024. Curtis, you're exactly right. I think that all all eyes have to be on it. People have to be very clever and and concerned about the elections. But um, we we have to do the two things at once. Well, you know, you bring me up to a point where I've always said all elections, all politics start local. They are local. I mean, if your local representative, your state senator, your state congressman, your councilman, your dog catcher, if they don't know you, then you're not doing your civic duty, uh, whether it's by writing a letter, making a phone call, sending an email. I'm to the point where county council sees me sitting there waiting to speak my mind. I get the eyes rolled. It's like, oh, what are we in for today? <laughs> I've had school board um uh, members, uh, elected officials, one of them stood there snickering at me as I spoke publicly, and I stopped, and I publicly reprimanded him for his behavior, 
And then I called on the other members of that board and said, how dare you not reprimand him? And those that do, I thank you. We'll help reelect you. Those who didn't will remember. And they will remember you. So, you know, you want action done, then you've got to have the courage to get your put your money where your mouth is, get your voice heard. Like I said, whether it's an email, a fax, a text, a letter, show up in their office in person. And I'm telling you, you show up in office in person, there is someone there that will open a book or open the computer, take down your name and phone number and the issue that you're there on. And they will remember you because every time you do contact them, you get put down there and they say, all right, this person contacted me because of dog barking or whatever it is. And action will be done. The more you speak, the more they act. Am I correct in the way you're looking for people? I agree. You know, everybody can do something here. You know, and you don't know what you're possible of doing until you get out and start trying it. You, this may have been your calling in life, and you haven't tried it yet. So, I encourage everyone to to get active. Um, you know, you can also do it by. Every time you talk with somebody, you're an ambassador of our of our ideas. So you're changing hearts and minds with everything you do. Um, you can write letters to the editor. You can write Facebook posts. You can just be someone who like is you know helps in a conversation after church or something. But you know every everything you're doing is ultimately moving us in a better direction. So keep that in mind. But as far as like Serving in the federal government, it's it's gonna take a lot of work for folks. It's not for everybody, um, but you know our our project here could involve a lot of people. And, and whether you're actually a candidate to serve, or you want to support someone, or just to support our entire efforts, that, that anything is welcome. We um, the the number of people who serve. I just want to make one point about about a president's control of the actual federal government. The federal government's 2.1 million workers. The president, when he, he or she comes into office, generally appoints about 4,000 people. So that's like one for every 500 civil service employees. Um, and that, that's an extraordinary ratio. If, if you're thinking, you, know, you read the newspaper, like President Trump's HH, you know, the, his Department of Health and Human Services did what? And it's like, you know, to, to actually get a handle on what's going on in these buildings, and they're filled with thousands of people doing, you know, thousands of different projects all along the way, is, is very difficult managerially. So it's, it's so important that the folks who, who get to these management positions have, have the command and the effort and almost the intuitive knowledge to 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 do things quickly and, and don't lose their backbone when they're there. And then we're we're, well, we get, we're reaching out. We're, we're going to bring those people to Washington. Well, we've got down to our last few minutes here. And I want to thank you for joining us because you know, we could talk so much more about this, and it's a fantastic effort. So we'll def- definitely have you come back on uh, more often. Let Tom know and have him send you over here. Be sure, happy I'd be to happy have that. To. And I'm telling you, you're going to come down to my Tea Party meeting. We're going to talk about that uh, because we've got the precinct uh, uh, reorganizations here in the county GOP. 
And that's another place in which we can have action made. If people say that the, both, both parties are corrupt, we can only correct it if we act from within. And if we get honest conservatives in there, whether you're precinct president, chairperson, secretary, whatever it is, you can influence the direction of the party and bring it back to its conservative values. So it follows its conservative creed. That's my lecture for today. Definitely. <laughs> no, I, I fully agree. Like, I listened to a lot of Steve Bannon, but he talks about human agency. And, um, you know, it's like it's, it's in all of us. We just have to uh, set out. And it's a great way to meet friends and to be alongside, um, you know, right-minded individuals. So there's, there's many benefits from undertaking the work. And because we did such a good organization in the prior one, this county went solid red for Donald Trump. Uh, there was no answer because we got people out there. We motivated them. We helped them get to the polls. And this is where the grassroots really can help what you need to do by getting the right person elected so you can get your playbook in there and the right people in place to get our country back on its track. God bless you for this hard work, Paul. Amen. Well, we we appreciate all the work you do, and I'll be happy to come back and tell you as our project continues to build, give you updates. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to running into you. Maybe it's a meeting if I can get out of the swamp and get down there on a Thursday. I'd love to join. Um, well, in, we're in the heart of the everyone. striking band yeah. here. So we've got a lot of civil servants that retired here that may want to get back into it, a lot of military that may want to get back into the action because, hey, they're good, honest, hardworking people. Maybe there's a gem in, in my group. Yeah, and, then, and they're out there. And, you know, if it's not that person, you know, there's so much you can do with just supporting the project or sending your ideas, you know. Also, like you said, putting, putting advancing these ideas in media or putting pressure on electeds who promise something and aren't delivering, you you got to speak up. So everyone can play a part and we're going to try to make sure this project's open to everyone, not just those who can make it, maybe make it up to Washington, but people who want to actually see the change happen after they, uh, after they go to the precinct and vote. All right. So people can get you through heritage foundation, heritage.org, or they can go to project 2025.org. Correct. Yes. Look forward All right. To well, Paul, well, Look forward to having you back on the show, and have a good weekend, and don't forget to turn your clock back. And God bless right. her. Thanks. God bless. Bye-bye. All right. Paul Dens, check out the website over at heritage.org. That's all we got here for today, Curtis, and we'll be setting up for uh, our show next week and going on forward. Uh, because of all the nutty things that happened these past two weeks, I haven't been able to work on the new format. I'm going to knuckle down. We will get it up and running. I had hoped to have it up by today, but it didn't happen. So we're just going to have to keep on going at it, and we will get it up. We will get it up <laughs> sooner rather than later. So, Curtis, thanks. We had a great show today. Did Curtis just mute himself? I think Curtis just signed off. Well, I'll leave everyone with a song from Gary Pecorella, which is quite appropriate following a Paul dance from Heritage Save America. So I say good night. God bless. See you next time, next week. Same bad time, same bad station. <laughs>